listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the GGTMC. Uh, this is a night recording, so I'm actually drinking alcohol, so no promises on the quality of the show. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. <laughs> and I'm drinking excessive amounts of NyQuil. Another. Oh, ooh. Well, you know, back when I was in high school, I used to drink uh, NyQuil to get a buzz. That's, uh, yeah, it wasn't healthy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, we have uh, been off for a couple of days here a little unexpectedly. So I think I didn't really say anything on the Twitter or anything because it's not my place. I just said that you were a little bit under the weather. But do you want to explain to our listeners why uh, maybe? I mean, it's your choice. You don't have to. But Yeah, uh, no, no, absolutely. Full disclosure to uh, our friends uh, who are our listeners. Um, so Monday night, I finished uh, watching our three movies this week at 3 a.m. And about five minutes after that, I hear my son crying. So I run upstairs and find that he's covered in vomit in his bed, uh, which Ooh. was the start of a wonderful 48-hour period uh, that involved uh, our house repeatedly looking like uh, a test site for the CDC. Um, I'd been covered in, I'd probably washed bedding and clothing multiple times. Uh, So we ended up taking him to the hospital. They hooked him up to an IV. We were there overnight. This is our second night with no sleep, my wife and I. And I get home in the morning to say, I don't feel well. And of course, those were ominous words because I proceeded to spend Wednesday and Thursday uh, in bed, uh, wow. just I mean, completely out of it, man. Just very, very sick, uh, vomiting, and and other things uh, which shall remain unmentioned. <laughs> yes, um, shit weasels. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I'm still very under the weather, and I have to get up in seven hours to start work. But I wanted to put an episode out because I remember, you know, I know how much uh, it meant to me when shows I enjoyed. Uh, we're out time and time again, week after week. So I, right. you know, I, I won't miss doing this for you guys, and I know Sammy wouldn't either. So yes, yes, and we're all glad you're better. And of course, I'm very happy that your son is better. I was very worried about that when you called me, uh, or actually when we, yeah, when we talked that morning. Or no, we talked that later that night. We talked that morning, and uh, you told me, you know, he was very sick, and you've been up all night, and was like, okay, we'll just postpone it and stuff. And then you called me back later that night, and that's when I got worried because you know it got pretty serious. So. Yeah, and I mean, I, listen, I'd take what I had a hundred times if he hadn't have to take it once, but yeah. the sad reality is, you know, and that's the, the problem with the shifts I work. I work four days, uh, 14 hours in a row, so my system is usually pretty run down. It doesn't, doesn't take much to get me sick. Right. So that is uh, the adventures of Large William this past couple of days, so in case anybody was wondering. Like yes, I told you guys, you not, yeah, nothing grim, just very ill. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, very smelly and unpleasant. Ugh. Yeah. I just yes. have this image of the, your house looking like uh, looking like the stairs and inside when Oof, the, when the yeah, bloods are, bad, when the fluids are running down the stairs. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad, man. It's a good thing. Let's just say it's a good thing our couches are leather. Oh, oh, yeah. hey, oh, hey, oh, my bad. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Man. <laughs> all right. So other than that, uh, let's hear what you've been watching. There probably be a couple extra days of what you've been watching here, if you would have been up no, to it. But. I, buddy, I, buddy, do you know what shambles? I, I'm not going to watch anything. I mean, between 
this week and in a week or two when I go on vacation. It's just going to be shambles as far as movie, movie watching. So since I since I watched the trilogy Monday night, I haven't watched nothing. Wow, wow. I haven't even watched TV. I've been I've been in bed sleeping, man. Yeah. I was in just such a feverish state, like just totally disaster. understandable. But I did get in a lot before that. Nice. Let's hear what you so got. I, I got in the Eurocrime film Freehand for a Tough Cop, which you'll hear about a little later on at the end of our show. Yep. Good film. Uh, I'd never seen it. Always meant to. Uh, I watched some uh, Gibson flick, uh, Edge of Darkness, which, uh, as I said to you, I thought it was good. I think people are too critical on it when they need to look at it more as a genre film. You know, if this was a 70s film with Jodan Baker, which yeah. ironically Jodan Baker was in the original, he played the Ray, Ray Winston role. Yeah. If it, this had been that kind of a film, people wouldn't have been as, as critical, I think. So it's a fun genre film. It's flawed in spots, but still not bad. Uh-huh. I'd like to spend more time pissing on the next film and shitting on the next film I'm about to talk about, but because of time constraints, <laughs> I won't. But I will say that Cold Prey, a.k.a. Frit Wilt, the Norwegian slasher, I hated it with every ounce of everything I am. Okay. I think it is the most by-the-numbers, bland, boring piece of shit I have ever seen as far as slashers go. Everything, it's by, the characters are such archetypes. The, the, even the, the DVD cover is so fucking by-the-numbers. I mean... I mean, listen, is it is it a testament to a small country like Norway having the visual panache to make a film that looks like a Hollywood slick film? Hey, good on them for that. But right. I hated it, man. Fucking hated it. Still haven't seen it, uh, but I will get back to you. At some point in time, I'll watch it, but it's not at the top of my queue anymore. <laughs> well, I asked Bjornar to send me a list of good Norwegian films to restore my faith, and he's done so, and I'll report in on them as I see them. Nice. Okay, good. Um I watched the Isaac Florentine film Ninja with Scott Adkins, which I've been meaning to see for quite some time. Uh-huh. Uh, good film. There is some budgetary constraints, and there's a ridiculous clothed shower scene. Um, but, <laughs> and a ridiculous you know, robotic-looking robotic ninja. And a robotic-looking ninja. But with that being said, uh, Adkins is the real deal, which I've always said. Yeah, he is. Uh, fantastic in it. Uh, and I followed that up with Ninja Assassin uh, with Rain. Uh, Kasugi's good in it. Rain is very, very good in it. But there's a little too much CGI and... There's not enough actual martial arts in it, and the whole cop and romantic subplot were ridiculous. But other than that, it was a good, fun, gory time. Yeah, did you like? Did you like the butter people? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that was awesome. People were just falling apart, man. <laughs> yeah, it was insane, man. It was like just butter sliding off of butter. It was insane. Uh, I watched Killer Workout, the rope exploitation slasher oh, film. Almost threw up. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, uh, beer went down the wrong hole when you said Killer Workout. I didn't expect you to watch that one. Yeah, it, uh, it it's not very good. It has a few moments, mostly the time capsule ridiculousness of the aerobics. Well, it's directed by that auteur known as uh, Ted Pryor, right? Not Ted Pryor, yes. but David Pryor. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, the Ted Pryor um, is the actor. David Pryor is his brother does the films. Yeah, there, it, it's it's pretty comedic in spots. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I called this stuff. I, then I'd watched so much garbage, in the, not garbage, but I'd watched so much kind of genre stuff that I wanted to, you know, crank it up a bit in terms of some more serious stuff so I, I threw on Coming Home the Hal Ashby film with uh, John Voight and Shane Fonda wow and uh, Bruce Dern uh, fantastic fantastic film uh, I think you know politics aside I think it really gives you such a strong indication as, at how good and how beautiful and how talented Jane Fonda was yes um, that is a uh, acting tour de force movie that one I like yeah, that one quite wow. a bit wow all three of those all three of them I mean John Voight wow yeah, and, just Br- really and Bruce Dern, film, Bruce Dern, who you know nowadays is always cast as the cantankerous old man, but mm-hmm. Bruce Dern was an amazing actor in the seventies. Oh yeah, he did so much good stuff in the seventies. But I, I highly, highly recommend that film. Um, and then I watched uh, the uh, Cassavetes film, Killing of a Chinese Boogie. Okay, um, 
It's it's way too long. I think I who was I talking about? Someone with oh, I was talking with I think Dusty about this on on the boards or someone. The film's two hours and twenty minutes long. It could have been an hour and forty minutes. Right. And I think that's the Cassavetti's cut is an hour and forty. Way too long. But but Ben Gazzara is amazing in it. Uh, there's some really good visual stuff in it. Um, I watched the maybe the most lowbrow, uh, gross out trash movie I've seen in a long time. And that's Naked Killer from Hong Kong. It's <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's produced by Wong Jing, and anyone who knows anything about Hong Kong cinema knows Wong Jing's name is is probably the more fart and dick joke lowbrow version of Brett Ratner, if that's even possible. Oh, wow, <laughs> I hate Wong Jing, but I hadn't watched. It. I was like, oh, I'll throw it on. Simon Yams, and he just got a mushroom cut. Oh, nice. He vomits whenever he sees a gun. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, and then the last thing I watched was a very very cool film that uh, Rupert had sent me uh, called The Outfit. It's a John Flynn film. With uh, Robert Duvall, Joe Don Baker, and Karen Black, and Robert Ryan, actually, uh, very good film, very very cool film. I highly recommend it to anyone who can who can find it. Yeah, he's been uh, he's been pushing that on us for a while now. Not 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 in a bad way, but he's been asking us about covering it for a while now. So, very cool film. Man. Might be. I'm sure it'll come up at some point in time. Oh yeah. All right. So you still got quite a bit in before the plague hit. Yes. <laughs> for the plague hit the household there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's good. That's good. All right. So I'll go over the films I watched outside of the trilogy. I got a few more on here because, and one of them I'm not going to mention because it's actually going to be something we're going to cover on a bonus episode. So uh, I, I watched uh, Don't You Forget About Me. This is the John Hughes documentary about the filmmakers that are that want to interview him and talk to him and and stuff. It's it's pretty good. Uh, it, it's not great, but I mean, if you're a John Hughes fan, you're going to love it. If you're just like me and you know, you like John Hughes films and stuff. You're gonna you're gonna find it interesting, and there's some really good tidbits and good interviews in there and stuff. So, pretty interesting. I watched uh, I See You, the uh, <laughs> the Sylvester Stallone, Robert Patrick. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a horror film set in like uh, some place in Wyoming with Chris Christopherson running it, and fucking Come Rock on. is in it, and fucking uh, who else is in it? Robert Patrick. I said him. Uh, oh fuck, I can't remember the other actors that are in it, man. Oh, uh, Jeffrey Wright's in it, playing some kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. It's got a hell of a cast, and the movie's that is it, an amazing cast. Yeah, the movie's pretty by the numbers. Kind of, it's almost like a slasher uh, in a way, uh, but it's pretty by the numbers and stuff, which is kind of unfortunate. But uh, I had a good time with it. I mean, it wasn't awful. I'd give it like a five point five, maybe a six at the top. You know, uh, so I had a pretty good time with it. Uh, so it wasn't real bad. Uh, I watched uh, the documentary. I think we're alone now. This is about the Ooh. people that stalk uh, Tiffany. Yes, and look, you know, I, I love Tiffany too. I think she's a gorgeous woman. Uh, that's Me too. I would I would love to get to know a little bit more of Tiffany, uh, but uh, I don't go this far. This is just really this is uh, it's one of the, at times it's one of the saddest and most disturbing films I've ever watched. So it's yeah. just really really unfortunate. Uh, but it's really good. It's a good little documentary. Uh, I watched the Wonder Woman animated film from DC. Another one of these comic book animated films. I'm not the world's biggest Wonder Woman fan, like Linda Carter more than I do the comic character itself, but. I had a good time with it. It was okay. You know, it's only like 70 minutes long, so it's about as long as these things need to be. Uh, I also watched uh, Night Beast, which is a Dan Doler film, which I'm going to be doing a uh, after we record our show tonight. I'm going to try to do a bonus episode with Miles and uh, Rupert to uh, kind of promote that a little bit, covering it. It's a Netflix instant watch. It's got to be seen to be believed. Well, as soon as I can get you a copy or as soon as you can find one, do yourself a favor. <laughs> the, sex scene, nice. the sex scene will change your life. <laughs> oh, wow. It is so bad. Uh, and I also watch Ninja. But I, I fall on the other side of the boat than you do. I do like Scott Atkins in Ninja, but I did not like Ninja. But that's just because I don't like Isaac Florentine at all. 
Uh, I really, yeah, I really don't like him. I, uh, you know, he speeds up the camera in his actions. It's like Power Rangers. That's that's where he comes from. So, yep. that just oh, it yep. just drives me crazy. And even though Atkins does a lot of great stuff in this, there's still a lot of moments where I could see that he was. They still had the camera sped up. And just yeah, but have you seen Undisputed too? No, I have not. And I know that I'm supposed to see this because Esky gets on me about this too. It's and, fantastic, and I'm sure I'll check it out. I, I do believe Scott Atkins has something. Uh, I don't think he has enough. What's the word I'm looking for? He he reminds me of Jean-Claude Van Damme, except he doesn't have as much charisma. But I'm just saying from Ninja. And Ninja, it, the whole film, it just felt like me, like he really needed to like fart or something. And he, he is a bit of a Wonder Bread character in Ninja, yeah. admittedly. But I'll see but some I mean, of his other stuff, and he's he's really good in the film. But, man, I, I I have to be honest with you, I have to side with Forrest Whitaker's neck on this. I was ultimately very bored. I, I, I'll, take, I'll take Ninja over Ninja Assassin, personally. Yeah, and I'm the Ninja Assassin. I think... We, we, there's a little bit of a thread going on on our boards about this because Esky's more, he hasn't seen Ninja yet either, but he, he didn't like Ninja Assassin. I know uh, Neck loved Ninja Assassin and didn't like Ninja as well as me, so I need some backup here. Uh, Forrest Whitaker's Neck, give me a call. Let's, let's, hear, let's hear what your uh, justification between the two is. I, I will concede that the high-tech ninja suit in Ninja was pretty lame, <laughs> and there are a lot of lame elements in it. I just think that... As a vehicle to promote Scott Adkins, I just I think it's a shame that he doesn't do more direct video. He's not more prominent in that way. Like I mean, the guy's so good with the martial arts. He's got the physique. He's got the look. Yeah, you know, it's just a shame. Well, he needs to get away from Florentine. That's just my opinion. I've seen a lot of Florentine. I've seen some of his Dolph Lundgren films, which are a travesty. And yeah. uh, so I'd get away from him if that's me. But I haven't seen Undisputed Two. Maybe Undisputed Two must be his masterpiece. It must be because everybody keeps telling me I need to check it out. So. Yeah, and it's a totally different Scott Adkins. I'm definitely going to look into it. Uh, I like the first Undisputed. That was a Walter Hill film, actually. Ironically, it was, and I didn't know it was a Walter Hill film until after I'd seen it. I thought I watched it. I thought, wow, this is a really good little film. Yeah. And then I went and looked in. I'm like, holy cow, this is Walter Hill. So I bet you know. I mean, I fall on the other side. So just didn't really care for it. Didn't do anything for me. But understandably, on the other end of the spectrum for you, the Ninja Assassin didn't do anything for you. So or not as much for you. So I should say. And I will say the girl in Ninja was so lame. Like, she was not convincing as, as like, a, a ninja, quote-unquote. The similarities between the two films is pretty amazing in some ways. Yeah, they're very stock, stock, stock. <laughs> they work story. in these subplots that don't need to be there. And actually, oh. I think Ninja does a better job of handling its subplots because it's yeah. a little bit more A to B to C. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ninja Assassin's like A to B. Oh, wait, here's a Q. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. here's an X. Wait a minute. Well, what the fuck? Oh, we better get back to B. You know, So yeah. it's, it's a little all over the map. And Ninja Assassin could really use... Uh, a tighter story and, and some editing. But, yeah, but Rain was great in Ninja Assassin. Full yeah. credit due to him, man. Yeah, yeah, you know he's really good. And of course, you knew we all know Shokazuki's going to be good. So, oh yeah, he's a master. He looks mm-hmm. an awful lot like Takeshi Kitano nowadays too. Man. A little bit with that flat top area. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know. Okay, the only other thing I want to talk about here in the intro is the Horhound Weekend in Indy. I was up there this past week. I met a lot of great people. Uh, as usual, uh, I got to hang out with a lot of old friends—not old friends of the show, but friends of the show. Uh, hung out with Randy, Demicle sixty six. Uh, I got to hang out with Brother DMS Brenmore this time, which was fantastic. Uh, got to hang out with them a little more. They're they're very popular at these things, them too, and they got they got a lot of uh, followers, so to speak. Uh, I got to hang out with uh, Fozzie Bear and uh, his significant other uh, George, I believe his name is. I got to hang out with. Um, who else? Uh, oh, Brian, the movie Meltdown Crew again. I got to hang out with those. Metal Mikey, of course. Uh, Questionable Mike from the old Obscure 80s podcast. I don't even know if they're doing anything anymore. Uh, just just a lot, of, a lot of good times and a lot of fun, man. And I saw Robert Zadar there. <laughs> oh, my God, Will. Robert Zadar looks like he is incredibly small. 
Seriously. And that is the most disturbing thing. Me and Brian were talking about this. We had some lunch. That video I shot and put on Twitter, that was when we were having lunch. Oh, yeah. And I was talking to Brian about this because we always talk about this kind of stuff when you go to these conventions. You're like, you know, which one of these celebrities is going to die next? I know it's a morbid, terrible thing to think of, but, you know, it seems to happen when you go to these things. And uh, we're kind of joking around, being kind of dark and comedic, thinking it's kind of funny. And, and, and I, I looked at Brian, and I'm like, I think it's going to be Zadar. And Brian goes, have you seen that guy? And at this point, I hadn't seen him yet. I ended up going back into the uh, convention hall, walking around with Randy, and we were, and I walked past him, and I was like, oh, my God. He looks like, and I, I hate to say this. I mean, I really shouldn't say anything bad about the guy. I'm not going to. He, just, he hasn't aged well. I shouldn't say anything bad about the guy because I do love Robert Zadar, so I, I can't say anything really bad. I've heard if it's any consolation, I've heard he's a real asshole in real life. <laughs> well, well <laughs> listen, he, he likes to drink from what I understand. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, he, he, I, I'm not going to say anything bad. Just, let's say he just looks like... <laughs> Looks like mashed potatoes on a human body. So, <laughs> uh, but it, it was just really bizarre to see him and stuff. And uh, but, it, but it was really great. I mean, I got to hang out with Lewis Fowler. Uh, yeah, I got to hang out with the Night Living Podcast guys a little bit. They were very busy. This thing was packed. It was so packed, in fact, that the fire marshal actually uh, wouldn't let people go in after a while. The convention hall was so packed, so oh. you had to stand outside and wait. Uh, so, but you know, a lot of the time I was spent just hanging out with people outside of the thing and stuff. And so we had a great time. Uh, and I advise anybody that goes in Annapolis, do not eat at a restaurant called El Dorado because you have more of a better chance of finding the lost city of gold than getting fucking food there. Wow. Uh, took forever. We ended up, me, Brother Dean, and uh, Miss Bren, and a couple others, uh, Casey from Bloody Good Horror Podcast, and a couple others took off and went over to the subway. Oh, and Nita Nickname Scott. I finally met Nita Nickname Scott. That's the guy that does all the reporting and the new stuff on Mail Order Zombie. I didn't know who this guy was. Now I know who he is. I got a face to go with the name. I, I knew who, I know Brother D was tight with this guy, but I never knew. I just thought this guy that walked around Brother D all the time was like his bodyguard or his best friend, but come to find out it's Nita Nickname Scott. So it was great meeting him as well. And I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. God help me if I am. I'm sorry. But I had a fantastic time. These, these things are great. One of these times, I'm just going to spend a whole weekend on one of these things. Yeah, we'll do it, man. We'll do it. Yeah, it'll be a great time. So we'll get the honeymoon suite. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the tub for two. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait a minute, is that a submarine? <laughs> wait, no. <laughs> that's a that's a shit weasel. <laughs> like I knew you were a plumber, Will, but Jesus, whoa! <laughs> Stay away from my pipes. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right. All right. So that is enough. All right, we're uh, our two films we're covering this week, which are our three films we're covering this week. God, I'm such a habit here. Uh, we're covering the Red Riding trilogy. So I don't think I've said that. And you heard my Kentucky accent right there. I just said riding <laughs> instead of writing. So the Red Riding trilogy. So uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and knock these out. Does that sound good, Will? Sounds great. All right, we'll be back right after this. Hey, I didn't see you there. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're obviously a man or woman of great, distinguished taste. You obviously like informed opinion, entertaining chat, all that other kind of bullshit that you want in your ears. Well, here's some more for you. Why not take a chance on Cinerama? Because with Cinerama, you'll never, ever, ever, ever lose. Packed with news, reviews movie monkey madness marathons and other assorted paraphernalia of awesomeness listening to Cinerama is statistically proven to make your life at least 6.5% better it might not sound like a lot but after you try it you'll see the difference the Cinerama difference you can find Cinerama on iTunes or at cinerama.podomatic.com Stay classy, you lovely fuckers. 
I just want you to know that I have my shirt unbuttoned all the way to the navel, and I do have my shark tooth on right now, moving to the music that way. I should hope so. <laughs> it's funny, I sent you that a while ago, and it's funny you played it this week, of course, because Jameer Quay, favorite artist of mine in high school, is an English singer who's very much rooted in 70s influence. So. Yes, yes. Interesting. It's good stuff. Um, okay, so here we go. Uh, okay, <laughs> sorry. I was uh, answering a text message while podcasting. Not professional at all. All right, so the Red Riding trilogy. These are this is a trilogy of films made for uh, I believe BBC Television. I think I said that last week. I'm pretty positive I did. Uh, anyway, we had heard about these for a while. I'd heard about them from uh, your favorite movie news site, uh, Twitch, and uh, I've been hunting them down ever since. And all of a sudden, they popped up on like uh, on demand cable. So I was like, well, fuck, we got to cover these fucking things. So that is what we did. So. The first one is called uh, Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord, 1974, and these are titled by the uh, the year, uh, some type of titling uh, you know they did for the films, but I liked it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Post Part 1, a rookie journalist looks to solve the increasingly vexing case of a serial killer on the loose. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> All right, so... I picked this whole trilogy, I guess I should say. So I'm going to go ahead and let you kick us off on this first film. We'll see what you thought of The Red Riding number one. Okay, so uh, before we go any further, one thing you and I had incorrectly stated was this was all based on the Yorkshire Ripper, and that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, this really deals with more more murder, I guess, different serial killers throughout the stories. Uh, the Yorkshire Ripper is featured prominently in the second one. These mm-hmm. are adapted from a quartet of novels uh, by British author David Peace. Uh, that's his Red Riding Quartet. And yes, uh, BBC, I believe, were the ones that adapted them. And yeah. it should be noted that I think Ridley Scott has been tapped to create, of course, the inevitable American remake. Yeah, they really shouldn't. I mean, some things I don't understand why they got to be remade. This one I really don't understand at all. No, it's not like this is some, you know, obscure Scandinavian masterpiece. It's yeah, that's, why don't English. HBO just like pick these up and show them for like three weeks, you know, like a miniseries yeah. or something, you know? It's ridiculous. And then I think it's also worth noting that these films were shot by three different crews, three different directors. Each one was a different director. The writers were David Peace and Tony Grissoni, who I think deserves all the accolades in the world uh, for his adaptation of the screenplay. Um, but yes. These were, and interestingly, these were all shot on different cameras. The first one was shot on 16mm, the second one 32mm, and the third one was shot with the red camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so different stylistic, different technical things. The only thing that's the same is, of course, the themes and a lot of the recurring characters. Yep. Um, so let's get into it. Um, the first one, as you said, is about a journalist, and it starts off with a quote that I think is kind of telling of journalism, and he's, he's talking about covering the, this, uh, these murders of young girls that are going on around Fitzsimmons, I think was the name of the uh, area within Yorkshire. And he says, if it bleeds, it leads, just talking about how sensationalism in newspapers and journalism tends to be the overriding, uh, that dictates, uh, you know, coverage in newspapers. Yeah, this one had the the most feel of uh, the Zodiac film we were talking about. We were talking about how they kind of look like they were going to have that feel. Of the three, this one definitely has the most feel. The second one does a little bit, but this one... Because of the journalism angle, I think it has yes. the most of the you know zodiac feel to it. You're right; it really does because of that, and and you know not just that, but I think you get this immaculate uh, all the technical, and this should be said throughout all the three films, but it was very noticeable immediately. The immaculate uh, the 
perfection from a technical standpoint, the, the lighting, the color palette, the production design, yes. uh, how in the moment uh, of the time they really feel, how authentic they feel. Yes, all three of these films are fucking gorgeous to look at. Oh, yeah, and I mean, you get the color, the color palette is very minimal. A lot of the times it's, it's very gloomy, grays and browns, uh, which I think is, is evocative of, you know, certainly the mood. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I, the thing that this shows early on, because we see the journalist, and the journalist, it should be said, is played by Andrew Garfield. Uh, he plays a character named Eddie Dunford. Um, actually, before we go any further, I want to say one thing to everyone uh, who's going to want to watch these movies or, or one or two even before we talked about them. You had mentioned this to me, Sammy, and I cannot stress this enough to everyone. Watch these as close together as you can and pay attention to every single detail. Yes. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they're three films that uh, they keep they keep referring to each other. Mm-hmm. And so you have to pay attention to every detail. You really do. I discovered this the hard way, but while about halfway through part two, I discovered that uh, I didn't know who the hell they were talking about, but I thought I did. And then I went back and found out that I did. I was right. So what I did was I decided to watch all three of them in a row, mm-hmm. which is probably the ideal way to watch them. But I don't know if people are going to have, you know, five hours, five to hours to waste on something like that or not waste, but five hours to spend, I should say on a trilogy like that. But if you do, and you feel like watching a trilogy of films, you'll be highly rewarded, I think. Yeah, I agree. And there's even if you do pay attention, there's still some things that you're not given answers to that will be gnawing in your brain until they come back around to tell you what that meant right. later on. Yes. So just pay attention and you know, uh, just keep your wits about you, and it'll all sort of make sense at the end. Um, let me see here. Burr, 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 burr. Well, it's, it's very evident in one of the themes. The themes in this film are, uh, I think, corruption, the, the darkness of man, the abuse of power. And we see early on in this first film that the police are not going to be the knights on white seeds that I think in a quaint and idealistic society we come to expect them to be. Yes. Boy, do we ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just uh, you cannot I mean, you can't even begin to fathom the darkness of man and the abuse of power and corruption that. It's so pervasive a theme in all three of these films. Yeah, and it goes pretty deep, too, and it covers all bases. And I don't really want to talk in in detail into what bases it covers because it gives away a major plot twist toward the back end of the third film. Yeah, yeah, we'll try to avoid spoilers as much as we can. Yeah, because there is a major one that I didn't see coming. Uh, of course, I kind of got a hint by the time we got to part three, but I was like, okay, well, and then I realized that I, a lot of my notes I took on part one, I'm not going to be able to take, I'm not going to be able to talk about because it, it might give away something in part three. So, we're going to tread lightly here. Try not to give away too much. Uh, Andrew Garfield, again, I talked about a moment with Lee. Didn't he remind you of, uh, what's his name, Michael Imperioli, uh, Christopher Moltisanti? Yes, without the uh, large nose. Yes, he did. He looked a lot like him. Yeah. He was uh, in, uh, he was in uh, what was he in? He was in... The uh, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. He played yeah. one of the assistants. Yeah, he was in that, and he was in another film. Uh, I didn't watch it. My wife watched it. Oh, it was The Other Bolin Girl. Never saw it. Yeah. Don't want to. Yeah, my wife was watching it, and I remembered his face. I didn't watch it either. My wife wanted to watch it. I was, I was like, I asked her, "Is like, is Scarlett Johansson get naked?" She's like, "No." I was like, "I'm not interested." So. Next, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> speaking again about the grays and the browns, I love how whenever they pull into Fitzsimmons, especially, how the gray clouds almost seem closer to the ground, almost oppressive and smothering, even more so than this kind of dire economic status of a lot of these residents in Fitzsimmons. Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't know how people in England or in this area feel about these films. I'd be curious to find out. I know Jamie, Dangerous Jamie, I know he 
he enjoyed the trilogy quite a bit, and he's looking forward to this episode because he's one of the few people I know who've actually seen all three films. Mm-hmm. I would be curious what he thinks about the way this England, quote unquote, is shot. How how it has what what the feel is like for him? Because for me, all three films, the theme uh, really that goes through it the most is the tone and atmosphere and feel of the movies. They mm-hmm. feel not only are they densely written, but they feel very dense. They feel very heavy. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's... No, it does. There, there seems to be a burden or a number of burdens on all the characters, uh, whether it's professionally, personally, or otherwise. There seems to be this burden uh, that just weighs on all of them throughout. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me to be very real cop work, very real journalist work. I mean, once you start digging into things, you know, you find out things you don't really want to find out. And all three films are very much about that digging and... And finding out things, and it's it's really really just it's it's incredible the way that the films themselves just feel heavy all the way down to the saturated wet ground from the rain. Mm-hmm. Really is amazing. And I love that the investigative work, whether it's by Dunford or whether it's by some of the police, mm-hmm. it feels real because it's hard work. It's microfilm. It's going to different libraries. It's 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 all this stuff. It's not just the internet. Bing bang boom. Everything's at your at your fingerprint on your fingertips. Right. It's it's real work. Footwork. They have to travel around to find out the stuff. Go on hunches. And I think that's one of the things I like about Dunford's character. That you know, with a different actor, this young and somewhat cocky journalist would have come across as obnoxious but i never find him that way because i think there's a there's a nobility to him and a youthful naivety that that serves him well as as being a good person uh but also serves him well as being a good journalist yeah and the one thing i really love about his character the most though he's a character of virtue to an extent he still has he's a young man so he has very base weaknesses that many young men have and i love that we explore his his sins as well as his uh you know his shortcomings, I guess I should say, is he has this virtuous attitude, but he has shortcomings. It's a very real character, the character of Eddie Dunford. I really enjoyed uh, Andrew Garfield in this film a lot. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, because I don't think it's giving anything. He gets involved when he's investing. He gets, gets involved with the uh, mother of one of the deceased girls. Yeah. And I, that's something very realistic. I know if I was a young man, his age 22, 23 at the time, I wasn't with a girl. I could see myself, or any young man. I mean, that's used to the very base needs of a young man. And, and again, it's, it's not done with anything... Uh, mischievous or, or conniving it's just it just seems to happen when you're a young man those sort of things so yeah, I mean he's just like following it. he's following his instincts and his instincts are to you know he wants to help and I think when people want to help they sometimes get themselves in, a little deeper in a situation literally <laughs> not to make yeah. a joke but literally than they want to be and uh, boy does he get himself into a situation <laughs> oh yeah um, and there's a chilling moment that I you know myself as a parent Sammy and I know you're going to come to this moment very soon where uh, Eddie asks, um, let me see her name here, uh, Mrs. What's her name? Oh, I, Rebecca Hall, uh, Mrs. Garland. Uh, he says, "Well, could they have done any? Could the police have done anything else to find your daughter?" And she says, "Yes, one thing. They could have found my daughter." And uh, you know, this stuff with 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 children being taken and abducted and killed and stuff. This absolute kind of black hole of emotional despair and just kind of the insect in your brain of it where it's like, what could I have done? What could the police have done? I can imagine that that sort of stuff just chews you up, just consumes you to no end. Well, yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about the kind of dark side of humanity, I mean, that really is the darkest side, isn't it? I mean, it's not just because children disappear and things happen to children, but if you look at nature, some of the darkest things that happen, I mean... When a lion's hunting, they hunt the wounded or they hunt the young, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very similar, and that human beings do the same thing. Unfortunately, some of us 
not us, but not probably, probably hopefully nobody listens to this podcast, but I'm saying there's some people out there that hunt the weak, the wounded, or the naive. So it's really just really dark stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, even not having a child and knowing I'm going to have a child, it's still, it's still, you know, it's still something that crosses my mind anyway. I mean, I just don't see how anybody could harm a child. I just don't, I don't understand the logic. I don't even want to get into it here because it doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't, I don't even, I don't even know what I would say. I just know that it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it goes against the most one-on-one elementary of of moral uh, decisions. But, you know, that's I guess we'll move on. But there's a great quote in this film that may sound to some a bit kind of, I don't know, uh, do-gooder. But there's a line that uh, uh, Dunford's peer, uh, I think his name is Barry, he says to him when they're talking about digging deep and, you know, trying to find out the truth in in their stories and stuff. And he says... The devil triumphs when good men do not, and I love that line because I think you know it, it, it's it's something that a lot of that a lot of times, you know, it's the truth. I mean, people, you're just as guilty sometimes if you do nothing and you let this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, I'm kind of at a loss for words to explain it, but I, I just I love that line and its simplicity and and the power in it and how it resonates on so many different levels. Yeah, it's really basically the uh, really if you think about it, that line is really the kind of the basic principle behind a lot of these three films a lot of, a lot of the theme of the whole three trilogy you it is you you are 100% correct it really really is um getting back to Fitzsimmons and again I apologize if that's not the name of the area I can't remember but I love that we we see this area and it's it almost looks like a third world country at times I mean it's just rubble and scrap metal and dirty bricks very industrial looking and very gloomy and uh yeah just brutal Oh yeah, it looks uh, it looks post-apocalyptic, don't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. No, it really does. In some ways, that's it, why I say I'd like to hear somebody from England uh, call in and say, you know, going to be let us know a little bit more about the surroundings, how it was shot and stuff. Because I mean, I haven't, I didn't, I haven't seen this this area, so I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see if there's still these type of areas there. Yeah, oh, I think it, it just you know it goes to show people that are the poor, and I think one thing that you also see throughout this series is how marginalized or how um, how helpless the poor are in these films or the powerless mm-hmm. uh, certain people are and the people in positions of power, how you know they just step on that uh, consistently. Yes. Um, Led by what has to be one of my favorite bad guy performances recently, John Dawson by Sean Bean. Oh, yeah. Sean Bean, who, you know, I mean, he, he's very much, uh, he's been very much Americanized. He's been in some big hits. And everybody knows him pretty much at this point. But in this film, he reminded me of a fucking wolf, man. Yeah, he was. He was this vicious, ugly, seedy, sleazy motherfucker. Big time. And he's so unrepentant about everything that he's involved with. Oh, yeah. He's just he's a fucking scumbag. Yeah. No, he really is. Uh, as a side note, this film had a great soundtrack. And I think not so much the second one, but the first and third one play a lot of period kind of soul pieces that weren't your obvious... Motown hits, which I really liked. Yeah, yeah, um, good stuff. Had a great little soundtrack. Uh, and the films, uh, as we talked about before, from a technical standpoint, I love that kind of yellow tinge or slightly green tinge they all have to give them even more of a period feel, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, there's some handcuffs used in this film that are used a few times throughout this film in a new and brutal way. I mean, it, it oh, makes some... Um, dude. <laughs> it make them, the, the, Some of the, the goon cops in this make Maurizio Merli... <laughs> seem like a crossing guard i mean they're yeah. brutal i have i will never look at handcuffs the same way again what do they say hands on the table 
Yeah, that's the you see it in all three films. Hands on the table. That's all you need Hands to know. Flat on the table. You got to see it to believe. Oh, it just oh, it just it just made me wince every time. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Um, it becomes evident, and I like that we're kind of piecing things together. And this is a difficult thing to do in a film. I like that we're piecing it together along with Dunford's character, and we kind of op- our mouths are kind of slack-jawed when we realize this is not going to be what we thought it was. It's much, much more labyrinthine and much deeper and darker than we ever could have imagined. Oh, yeah. And there's a revelation near the end of the uh, film that kind of makes you wonder where it's going to go or where it made me wonder where things could have possibly gone um, and how it almost has like this domino effect. But anyway, I, I don't want to say too much, so I'll let you uh, get into your notes. All right, I don't have a lot of more notes uh, because a lot of the stuff you said is the same stuff I said. Uh, the period, like I said, this is a period piece, and it's very, very well done. I mean, it never feels like it's not of the time it's set in. I don't see any slip ups or anything. I mean, it really feels like 1974. Oh, really yeah. great. Uh, again, talking about the tone and stuff and the thick accents. Uh, I know some people have complained a little bit about the accents because they are pretty thick. I think they're thicker actually in the second film than they are in this film. Yeah, but uh, that really adds to it, though. I really like that, uh, you know, those English uh, accents and how they're different uh, depending on class and area and blah 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 stuff we've all heard before. But I love that kind of the kind of thickness to it. You know, I, I really enjoy that. So, same way, I'm sure somebody in Europe probably enjoys, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds cinema because of the Southern accent. It's probably thinking, oh, people really talk like that over there. You know, I mean, <laughs> so that's kind of way I feel. But I really feel like you nailed it when you said the story about corruption. I really feel like. Corruption is the key to a lot of these these three films, and it really goes back to that line of uh, you know saying you know that all the devil needs to win is you know for good people to do nothing. I mean that that's the basis of corruption in a lot of ways. I mean you can become corrupt very easily, mm-hmm. and uh, that's not giving anything away of the film. I mean it's really a basically a story based around serial killers and corruption and things like that. But that doesn't tell you anything about what the the main story of the trilogy is. Uh, it really goes into dark places. Uh, again, I really like Sean Bean the film. I liked I like the dream sequences. I know some people complained about in the first one that the, the, they uh, get, I'll I let you finish before I say anything on that. Okay, I was making sure I wasn't giving away a spoiler because I heard you kind of cut in there. Uh, I just like the dream sequences in the film. I think they're really well shot, but I think they 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 they're they're well ha- they're well shot, but they're mishandled a little bit because there's some confusion in spots. About you, I absolutely agree with you, Sammy. That was all I was going to say was I think they were handled a bit clumsily where I didn't quite know what was reality and what was happening. And they weren't handled in a clear enough way when it's already a dense enough story that I don't need to be muddled any further with dream sequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's really the biggest weakness of this film is I, I think the dream sequences on their own are fantastic. The problem is I just think the way they're weaved into the story and stuff, it leads you to some confusion. And if you're not paying attention again, you're going to really be confused because the dream sequences will really throw you off. Uh, this director, Julian Gerald, I believe his name is. I think he did uh, Kinky Boots, which I saw. Uh, oh, yeah. That's the one with uh, Easier Four in it, I believe. Uh, pretty good film. Uh, he's a good filmmaker. I, I, I like his uh, visual aesthetic and stuff. This film's just got some some flaws and stuff, but overall, I think the film's uh, pretty damn solid. And uh, I wish American TV shot movies like these. <laughs> I know it, it sounds like, you know, you know, every country always complains about what another country has, but I really do wish American uh, TV companies would uh, ball up a little bit more and, uh, you know, or nut up or shut up or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, it's always going to be the cable companies here that make those kinds of films. Like I saw an ad the other day for a Jack Kevorkian biography starring Al Pacino. I can't wait to watch this fucking thing. Oh, wow. Well, that's made by HBO, though. So, But still, I mean, 
I just feel like this is something that Europe gets more right, especially the BBC when they make their films and stuff. I mean, this is a film film. This isn't a TV film. This film's dark, uh, and it's not a film I'd watch with you know younger people or anything like that. This is a dark dark no. subject matter, subject matter. So, well, yeah, it's very much adult themes. Yeah. So, but I really really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm really glad that uh, you dug it too. I also want to mention Peter Mullen, the actor that plays uh, Father Laws. I believe is his name. I, I love that actor. He. Uh, Good character actor. Yeah, yeah, he was. He's been. In, he's in a lot of English movies, but uh, he was in a movie he starred in called. Uh, I think it's called On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever or something like that. Maybe, or maybe it's just called On a Clear Day. I don't know. Anyway, he plays where he's going to swim across the Channel, the English Channel, right? He's a older oh, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He is fantastic in that movie. The movie's, yeah, I the movie's the movie's okay, but he is fucking fantastic in the movie. Well, I think it should be said, because I don't know if we're going to touch on it too much. I think the acting across the board in all three films is fantastic. Not one person in these films feels out of place. Which is amazing when you consider there's a, a lead performance in the third film by what is who is mostly known uh, by Paul Addy, who is mostly known as a comedic actor, puts in a pretty mm-hmm. brilliant performance, I think. so. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's all my notes on the first part. I'll go ahead and let you do your MVTs and stuff. Okay, uh, my make or break was just the scene with Dunford and his... Um, and his uh, his friend Barry, his his uh, I guess mentor in a way at the the newspaper, when he does say that out of that line, the devil triumphs when good men do not. I think that really is what, like you had said, encapsulates what the drive of our main characters in all three of these films really is. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love that moment. You know, it's even more poignant when you look at what happens afterwards. Um, my MVT is going to be Garfield. Like I said, I think the role of Eddie Dunford playing the cocky, young, self-assured. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear. You. Okay, the self-assured journalist could have been a bit grating if handled by the wrong actor, but I think he gives him a human spirit, and you believe in him as the intrepid journalist without it being a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, my score for the film is an 8.25 out of 10. Oh, nice. Originally, I'd given this one an 8, uh, but I went back and gave it an 8.25, you know, in my fever dream state. As sick as I was, I couldn't help but think about these films <laughs> over the past few days, so <laughs> I bumped it up a notch. Uh, yeah. Nice. All right, well, my make or break uh, scene for the film is the first time Bean and uh, Garfield meet. Mm. They beat in that, uh, that funeral stuff, and he gets him in his car and stuff. Fantastic dialogue and scene. Oh, uh, yeah. Really, really, really good stuff. Uh, really great acting in that moment, and the way the scene pays off is pretty fantastic, too. So really, really like the interaction between Bean and Garfield in the film. There's a couple moments where they get together. There's actually a really good dinner scene, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have a every time they drink a beer in a restaurant and they fill it to the top like that, it makes me want a beer so bad. Oh yeah, <laughs> a nice cold beer. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, my MVT is also going to be Garfield. I think he's really, really good in this film. He really holds that balance of uh, innocent young man slash growing into a kind of a darker older man because he falls to some weaknesses and stuff. He's you really see his character changing throughout the film. You know what I like, too, about the fact that it was a young man is I think being a young man, his naivety is kind of what drove him. Because if he was a bit older, some men would, would just would know how insurmountable what he was facing was yes. and would, given, would, have, would have given up. But through youthful arrogance, he yeah. persists on. Yeah, youthful arrogance, stubbornness, these things. He just keeps going. And uh, it goes all the way to the end of the film, which we won't give away here. Um, my score for the film is a 7.75. I liked it a little bit less than you did. But I still think this is a very, very solid film. Really, the the thing that hurts it the most is some wacky editing and dream sequences. Uh, not that again, like I say, not that the dream sequences are bad; they're very good. It's just the way the film is weaved is kind of imperfect. 
Uh, but I do agree with you on the performances. This is just the first time we're going to talk about the performances, but they're fucking amazing in this film. So mm-hmm. everything, all the little character bits. There's nobody in the film that feels like they're out of place or anything. Everybody's like spot on. Oh yeah. So very good stuff. All right. So that is our review of Red Riding Part One. That is 1974 in the year of our Lord 1974. Uh, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and we're going to cover Part Two and Part Three in one segment. So we will be back right after this. This is Ken Forey. Just want to tell you about Mail Order Zombie. Great company. They review zombie films, any zombie film, every zombie film. And it's uh, something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Mail Order Zombie, and find out what the hot zombie films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the the cutting edge of of reviewing zombie movies. And if you're a zombie, or you want to be a zombie, or you're thinking about being a zombie, or your mom's a zombie, your dad's a zombie, your damn mother-in-law's a zombie, tune into Mail Order Zombie, baby. You'll find out what's going on. Ken Forey, and that's out. Episode number one of the GGTMC <laughs> with that music there. Something we've been looking for for 74 plus episodes. <laughs> and somebody finally sent it to us. Uh, that was Mike, right? Yes, it was. I want to thank Mike for that, for sending that to me. I've been looking for that song forever. He actually ripped that off of a vinyl LP, which you can totally tell. But I, I kind of like the scratchiness of it. It adds a quality to it. Yes, it does. So thank you. Thank you to that, Mike, for that. Oh, yes, yes. That's, that song's been on my iPod on repeat. I don't know how many times. I've been singing that everywhere I go, man. Picture yourself coming down the, uh, the the ladder from the plane with your aviators on. Yes, yes, and Tommy Lee Jones looking across at me. Yeah. I'm like, Tommy, Tommy, I don't want to fuck, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's do Red Riding Part 2. Do you want to synopsize this one? And uh, I'll take uh, off on it, I guess. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Part 2, Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord, 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by James Marsh. James Marsh, of course, uh, probably, for my money, is the most uh, critically acclaimed of... The three directors. Uh, he did Man on Wire, the documentary. He did The King, which is one of my favorite actors, Gael Garcia Bernal. Yep. Uh, Wisconsin Death Trip, The Team, a few other things. Uh, and it stars one of my all-time favorite, well, all-time, my, one of my current favorite actors, Patty Considine, uh, as well as a lot of the other characters from the first film. And the synopsis is, police corruption interferes with the search for a killer in Yorkshire, England. Yeah, that's pretty basic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought for some reason. Remember when I told you I thought that one of these was directed by Nimrod Antal? I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, we, we both had thought that it was all about the Yorkshire Ripper. I mean, we just, I don't think we'd done much beyond, yeah. I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> we, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? We're movie fans. We don't know what the fuck and, we're talking about. And, and there's no Satanists in this film. Yes. 
thankfully. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so this is part two in the year of Lord 1980. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is Patty Considine a little bit. Uh, he's one of the definitely one of the best actors working today. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of you know his face. Uh, if you don't know his name, trust me, you know his face. Uh, he's good in everything. I don't think I've ever seen him in a film. I've seen him in bad movies, but I don't think he's ever been bad in a Love movie I've seen. Patty. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He really is. Um, this one, uh, you know, you get a little bit more of the Yorkshire Ripper uh, kind of uh, background plot going on here. And for those of you familiar with the Ripper, I'm not going to go into it, but uh, they found an actor, man, who looked almost just like that guy, which was yeah, kinda... it's it's crazy. I looked at the picture too, and I almost shit myself. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's kind of bizarre. You know, I have to wonder in the era of you know mass information available, you know how serial killers still operate in society. It seems like, you know, when you watch these older films and when serial killers used to, you know, operate in the late 60s and 70s and, uh, you know, well, actually, you know, serial killers go back to, you know, almost the beginning of civilization. You have to wonder how anybody could get away with anything now uh, because of all the scientific research and stuff that's done with, uh, you know, I mean, it's not all like CSI or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, you got all of these tools at your at your hand now, but... Back then, you really had to do the work, and I think that that what this film really exemplifies right here. This this one is all about doing the work, and with that, you get a great workmanlike actor in Patty Considine, and he fits the bill perfect. He seems to be this kind of uh, he's he's young, but he's just on the precipice of being worn out by his job. Uh, the darkness is kind of like you know of all these things he has to look at. You can tell that it's really starting to wear on him a little bit. Oh, he, yeah. He's on edge. Uh, I think basically you're seeing the beginning of a man falling apart. Whereas in the first film, you saw a young person delving into darkness. And, you know, whatever transpires there, I don't want to give it away here. This one, you kind of see a character coming in who has already seen some darkness. Some. Because I think by the time you get to the third film, you get a character that's already in the darkness mm-hmm. that you kind of follow from the get-go and the Paul Eddy character. So. Uh, I don't know if you felt that way or not, but that's the way I felt with all three films. I felt like it was like you know the birth, the 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 maturity level, and then the the kind of fading level on the on the back end of some ca- yeah. personal careers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, these films are you know definitely this one's uh, probably the most seventies influenced of the three. This one really feels like a good old fashioned seventies uh, murder mystery film. Uh, there's some really good uh, violence in the film. Uh, <laughs> There's a there's a subplot with some uh, affairs going on, which, by the way, I have to say, and this wouldn't be the gentleman's guide if we didn't say it, uh, Patty, uh, buddy, you know, if you're going to have an affair with a character, I don't know if I'd have an affair with that girl. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, call me, again, call me quaint. I was a bit disappointed with that, but I guess they needed it kind of to propel the story a bit. Yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, again, it's, it's, it's another thing of showing a man's weakness and stuff. Uh, the only problem is that, you know, she wasn't no Tilda Swinton. That's all I'm going to say. Thank goodness for that. But. What? <laughs> she wasn't no David no. Bowie, so you know. <laughs> yeah, no, but I agree. She she wasn't. But I think you know. I think it's sort of said that. You know what? Uh, I don't want to say too much because then it's going to reveal things right off the hop. So yeah, yeah fair that, enough. That's really the most difficult thing about covering this trilogy. I realized after we watched, after I watched it, I thought, you know, we're going to have a really hard time talking about these because they're all so interlaced and there's a big mystery going on here and I don't want to give away anything because that's not what we do on the show I know you don't either so I was kind of curious as to what these reviews are going to be like because I, I didn't know how much we could actually talk about outside of the visual aesthetics and the acting uh, because plot elements I know, I know we don't talk a lot about plot anyway on the show we're not that kind of show we just kind of kind of hover around it and talk about all the little details 
But this one is even more difficult than some of the others I found to review. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I had a, I had a hard time making notes for these films. Yeah, because I just felt like you know I didn't want to give anything away. Uh, I do enjoy again the puzzle and the reappearance of characters. It's really fantastic. Uh, I think what Patty does in the film is very difficult for an actor that he that he shows these kind of emotions and 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 uh, these kind of this kind of conflict he has in his face. But it's very stoic. It's not very uh, um, uh, demonstrative. It's just you can kind of tell it with a slight twinge of his face. But that's what makes him such a great actor is that he. Mm-hmm. He can do stuff with his eyes or with his mouth or with his eyebrows or just a movement of his hand or something or even an exasperation of breath. Even if he takes a deep breath, you know what Patty Considine's doing. You know how his character feels. I mean, I, I think it's why he's one of the most, you know, one of the most talented actors working today. I mean, he's really, he really is. I, w- I would argue, and I'm sure you would agree with me on this, he really is top five working right now. Yeah, I love him. I love, love, love him. Yeah, he's fantastic. He really is. And great character actor and great leading actor. So he can do it all. He's the John Lithgow of our time, Will. <laughs> well, he has, you know, he has, he has an everyman quality. He's not too pretty or mm-hmm. he's not too ugly. I mean, that may sound silly to say, but he has a good everyman quality. He has enough charisma to, to rise above that sort of everyman appeal, but he can also tone it back to, to blend in as a character actor. Yes, yes. This one, uh, this one is a little bit more exciting, I guess, uh, maybe the word. Uh, and I'll say that now because I think that the the back end of the third one's really exciting. But the back, the, and we'll talk more about the third one here in a little while. There's some other flaws in it and stuff. This one feels the most complete, though, of the trilogy. I think me and you talked about this off the air a little earlier tonight. This one really feels the most complete of the three. Uh, it really feels like a, it actually feels like it could be a standalone film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think if people were to watch it and they didn't want to watch the whole trilogy, this would definitely. If you didn't want to watch the whole trilogy and you're only interested in watching one film, which I don't know why you would, but if you did, uh, this would be the one to watch. It is uh, certainly the best of the three. Uh, I can say that now, or and we. And I think you agree. I with would. That. I would. I would agree with that. Yes, and I know the dangerous Jamie actually agrees with it too. He really liked part two a lot as well. Uh, it feels. It just feels the most complete. Like it. It really knows what it is from the beginning to the end. Um. There's some really great scenes, like I said, with reappearances of characters and stuff. And at first, I'm thinking, you know, why is this character back in the film? This has nothing to do with him or her, you know. And then, of course, we get to part three, and I start to see more of what's getting ready to happen, and, and everything starts happening. The amazing thing about this trilogy is what you said in the beginning. You know, it's three it's three different crews, three different filmmakers, and yet, even though the films all have a totally different type of vibe to them, they still have some similarities because of, I guess, the time frame they're set in. Or how they're shot, or where they're shot, where they. Like I said, also, oh, sorry, sorry also, like I said, the Tony Grissoni screenplay did a marvelous job of mixing everything together. Yes, and it's really amazing that you get three different stylists and filmmakers, uh, and especially when we get to the third film, because once we mention who that director is, you're gonna be like, what? But I mean, it, it's really amazing to me that they managed to carry this theme through uh, these three films, this five and a half hours, five hours of film that you could sit down and watch. I mean, it's really amazing to me that you can get through these and, and just have this feeling like you just, you know, you've just been kind of knocked off your feet by this one gigantic, great film. And yet, you know, you have all these differences, but you're right. I mean, it really goes down to the Grissoni uh, screenplay. I mean, this guy should be working in Hollywood. No doubt. What else has he written? Has he written anything else? Uh, I, I read in, I looked into him and there wasn't anything of any real, real consequence that I could remember. And forgive me if I'm, uh, misspeaking when I say that. He, oh, he he wrote the screenplay for Tideland. Oh, yes, he's worked with Terry Gilliam. He's actually uh, 
wrote and the script. He's actually them. he wrote the the script for the new Terry Gilliam film, which has been in the works forever. Yes, uh, the man who killed Don Quixote. Yes, yes. Look and see if there's anything else in here. Maybe I've seen, but a lot uh, of TV work. Brothers of the Head. Interesting. He did the screenplay for that. Yes, very interesting. Let's look and see if some of these songs, some of these movies. A Dark Water sounded familiar from 1980, but I don't think I've ever seen that. So I know Dark Water was the name of the remake of the uh, Japanese. Oh. Well, he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas too. Oh, there you go. So he knows how to make uh, sense of lunacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, former Kentuckian uh, Hunter S. Thompson. There, uh, yes, uh, yes, was born right down the street from where I'm at, actually. Nice. Um, yeah. So I mean, you know, he 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 manages to weave an, a master story here, and I still I still just find it amazing though that you got three different filmmakers making these films and stuff. But yeah, yeah. I mean, this one's really great. I mean, you you follow uh, Patty's character, Peter Hunter. Uh, you know, you get some nice uh, moments between him and one of the female uh, leads. And I'm not giving any plots away, uh, any plot or any secrets away or spoilers, I should say, by saying that you know he's had an affair uh, in the past with this character. So it, it leads for some really good scenes between him. And her, uh, there's some other good scenes between him and another character he hires, which I don't want to bring that up right now. But, and I really can't really bring too much about that up anyway, because it really has some really uh, interesting moments. Uh, we get a return of those uh, those cops. Uh, we get some more handcuff to the hands. Oh yeah, <laughs> the uh, put your hands on the table uh, moments, which are uh, trust me, you guys got to see this. Just like oh, <laughs> please. Yeah, I think that one cop. I think that's Sean Harris. I might be wrong. I'm hoping I'm right. Yeah, it's John. Is that the guy that played Craven? Yeah, yeah, Bob Craven. Yeah, Craven. Yeah, yeah. That guy. When I first saw him, I was like, "Oh man, what a weasel!" But he turns out to be an incredibly creepy character. Yeah, he does. He really does, and uh, he's been in some other stuff too. He was in Harry Brown. I remember him in Harry Brown, which I saw, but you haven't watched yet. So I think it's interesting that we see from the first film to the second film that his character has risen up the ranks. Yes, as well. He's moved up the ranks, and by the time you get to the third film, I think he's a supervisor, isn't he? I think so. I think so. No, no. I, I can't remember. No, and I won't. I won't say any more than that. If you think about it, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to think about it because I'll end up. I'll end up slipping. This is this is the most. I, I'm, I'm honest with you right now. After 75 episodes doing the show, this is the slipperiest slope I've ever been on. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> this is the tough one. This is the one that's tough for me. For some reason, I have a hard time talking about these three films because I don't want to give anything away because the thing is so dense. I'm afraid I'm going to give something away that's going to ruin part three or part one for somebody. Yeah, and I don't want to do that. I just want to, yeah. I talk about the acting. We got James Fox in the film at the beginning. I, I don't know if you know that that older actor. You've probably seen him before, but he's been in a lot of good stuff. He was in, uh, I think, the original Jackal film, which is uh, really good if you've never seen the original that the I've uh, seen remake was the made. The Day of. of the Jackal. Yeah, the Day of the Jackal. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, with the French, uh, with what the assassination of uh, thing, uh, the pre- the uh, president or prime minister. Yeah, of that's France. the one they re- they kind of remade with the. Baldy Bruce, I think. I think it's called The Jackal, though, I think. Oh, God, yeah. Something like that. But he was in The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, stuff like that. A lot of those English films from back in the day. Uh, really good actor. Uh, kind of overrated because he kind of just he just kind of looks like the old man in the corner all the time now. Mm. So he kind of gets uh, overlooked a lot. But, yeah, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot more to add, man. I mean, I just I really like the interaction of the characters in this. Patty Considine is really the tour de force in this film. I think you know where my uh, MVT is going to lie with this one. I think I know where yours is, too. Um, yeah. Again, the character they uh, hired, to, the actor they hired to play P, uh, Pete Sutcliffe, was uh, disturbing in his uh, similarities. Uh, oh yeah, just creepy. Uh, yeah, I don't really have much more to add. Well, I don't know what else I can say about this film without giving it away. I hate to say that because that's not something I like to say, but 
Uh, maybe you got something that uh, you know I, for, I overlooked. We'll see what you got to say. Well, let's yeah. Let me get into it. I love that the film opens up with documentary footage because again, I think it should be noted these are real crimes that have um, they've taken uh, fictional characters and, and added them in for the sake of dramatic purpose. But I love the dramatic the documentary footage early on and seeing how it impacted the community. It's not just the procedural work; it's you see the community and how shaken up they are and the candlelight vigils and all that stuff. Yes, it makes it really hit close to home. Um, there's a line that got the the commanding officer on the on the task force fired, but I think it was kind of a poignant line, or not poignant, but compelling line when he's speaking to the Yorkshire Ripper from the TV, and he says, "You're like a bad angel on the wrong mission." And <laughs> yes. uh, I like that line. Yes, there's a lot of really good lines in the film. I mean, I didn't write down any of the quotes this time around, but there's a lot of really good uh, one-liners and and great dialogue scenes in these three films. Oh, yeah. Uh, this film to me, or these films, I should say, feel a lot like The Wire in that their perspective shifts from sort of journalist to cops to, in the third one, more of a, a lawyer and, and someone else. But it, it shifts perspectives a lot. This one is the police perspective. Um, this script to me of the three, even though they're all written by the same man, it seems to have a little more pop to it. And I don't know if it's because of the actors involved, but it seems to have a little bit more pop to it. Well, I think it's the camaraderie of the characters a little bit. Uh, yeah, I really yeah. like the the assembling of a team moments. I think oh, me and yeah. you both like that a lot in movies. Uh, I think a lot of people like that when you assemble teams to to take on a task, mm-hmm. and the team feels right in this. And of course, you know you get some you get some more insight into it as the film goes along, which I don't really want to go into. But yeah, I mean, I really like the team they put together in the film. I like the way they oh, yeah. they pursue. I like the way he assigns the murders to certain detectives. I love all that. This is fantastic stuff. Well, it's great because what happens is they've been getting nowhere, and they're just taking the police are taking a beating from a publicity standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bring in Peter Hunter, who's from the Manchester Police, and uh, they're interviewing him and asking him, you know, why does he think that they've asked him to take this job? And there's a great line when I guess Peter Hunter, because he was involved in, and they keep referring to something where I just realized that Peter Hunter is an unfortunate name. <laughs> yes, it is. Actually, I just realized that once you said it. Um, <laughs> Peter it's, Hunter. It's uh, it's in the way you say it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Peter Hunter, Pete Hunter, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, they tell him that are you aware of your nickname from some of the Manchester police, and your nickname is Saint Cunt. Yeah. And they yeah. say bothers you bother you does it? And he yeah. says not at all. And they said there's your answer. That's why you're hired because essentially he's going to have to ruffle some police feathers to get the information he needs and get de- to get done what he needs to get done. Yes. So they know he's the man for the job. Saint Cunt. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> But careful what you wish for uh, yes. on all sides, really. Um, but yeah, I love that assembling of the team. And Wow, Patty, the- Patty Constantine's younger than me. That disturbs me. That's crazy, man. <laughs> that's crazy. He's a year younger than me. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, the thing I like about this, like we said, Patty's character, Peter, is one that we know has seen a lot of darkness. And what I find so um, admirable about the character is we know that he knows what kind of a tool this is going to take on him, but his duty and his honor drive him to do what very few people can do. Uh-huh, people uh-huh. with real morals. And you know, I often talk about uh, how it's a lot more difficult to make the right decision a lot of times. Yes. Uh, and especially when you feel the pressure from all sides, but his character is bound to determine to do what's right. Yeah, and that's another, I mean, that's another callback to the, the Garfield character in the first film. I mean, he has virtuous, you know, he has this virtuosity. He knows... What he needs to do is right, but he also has a very human side, which is flawed. Yes. 
and yes, which they, we see here as well. And they and all three of our leads in all three films are virtuous people who have made mistakes, like any normal human being would. Yes. You know? I mean, we, we none of us are perfect. Another thing, getting back to the, how it impacts the community, one thing I really loved that made this, the hysteria and the, the fear of this whole thing hit home for me was how insane I found it. that They would post billboards up with uh, letters that the Yorkshire Ripper had written, and they would say, do you recognize this handwriting? Yeah, no. Or, or they would play these radio ads saying, call this number to hear the Yorkshire Ripper's tape-recorded message to police to know if you recognize this voice. And just how it, it, it just seemed to seep into everything in everyone's lives in the community. Well, I mean, uh, I guess Yorkshire is a very small area. I've never been there. I'd imagine that if a serial killer is running loose in a very small area, it would be very frightening. Yeah. Very frightening. Yeah. I mean, uh, I know the only thing I can relate to is I remember being a kid and uh, some very violent criminals got out of a prison that wasn't too far away from Louisville. And they were last sighted in the neighborhood I was growing up in. Sure. And that was a scary moment. That was a moment of, uh, oh, you know, this is the real world all of a sudden. I think I was about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. That was, I can I can actually dial that back to, you know, a moment where I would say that I went from young child to, you know, young adult really quickly. Because yeah. the reality of something like that happening hit me. You know, what if, the, what if this person gets a hold of my little brother? What if this person kills my mom? What if this person kills my dog? Mm-hmm. You know, the, so, you know, I went from a young boy to... Young man, pretty quick. The balls dropped, Will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so they would in a situation like that. Yes. Uh, there's some great tense scenes with Hunter and Craven, which is kind of ironic to comic book nerds because Craven was the great Hunter. Um, Ooh, nice. Nice. <laughs> I like that, Will. High five over the internet, buddy. Yes, indeed. Nice. Uh, so I love that the, there's these... this Because Hunter had investigated some misdeeds or wrongdoings by Craven in the past. Uh, and I love that the tension is so thick with those two characters throughout this film. Oh, yes. Because yes. Craven, because he's worked on the Yorkshire Ripper case, has, has to, you know, work closely with Hunter, but neither one of them wants to, but they know they kind of have to. Yes. Yes. Um, this film, more than the other two, has less of a period score and more of a kind of spare string and piano score, which... Kind of gives it a more somber and downbeat uh, feel. It still captures the '70s, like you said, very well from an aesthetic standpoint. But from a musical standpoint, it's a little bit less. Which less is really weird because I guess it's supposed to be 1980. But I guess you can you could say that the '70s are bleeding over. It is '80. It's not. Yeah. Well, it would have definitely still been yeah, bleeding over. Yeah. Um, someone who has, I think, every scene they're in in this film that is just steeped in urgency and is haunted to no end are the scenes with BJ the male hostler, who really is the key to everything uh, that that we see. I mean... You know, that's somebody uh, we didn't really talk about in part one either. You know, BJ was really great in part one. He's only in really one scene. Or maybe one or two, yeah. Yeah, and there was a great moment between him and Garfield. Mm-hmm. And it was very... Garfield used, like, uh, like a little bit of sexuality toward BJ. Yeah, he did. To kind of get what he needed out of BJ. And I really found that scene fascinating and, and well, well, well done. Yeah, because, yeah, he's, you know, exactly. But I should be said that uh, Robert Sheehan, the actor who played BJ, he's a young man. He's only 22. He's going to be in your boy, Nick Cage's new movie, Season of the Witch. Yeah, I know. I, I can't wait for that. Uh, I saw that when I was looking through his filmography. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hopefully he'll be wearing good. the BJ costume and then. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The, the half, the, the cropped denim uh, acid wash jacket. 
yeah, outstanding. But no, he's he's great in this in all three films. Just the sense of urgency and and haunted to no end after the things he's seen. I mean, it's just he he is probably the most tragic of all the characters yes. in the film. Yes, exactly. And and here you're just seeing the beginnings of his tragedy. Oh fuck. Um. And they really hit home a lot of the brutality and the inhumanity of, of of these crimes. Some of the pictures they show from the crime scenes talk about women being penetrated with different objects. Uh, it's it's just awful, awful stuff. I can't even fathom. Um, another great scene, and that's the thing. I, I think one of the reasons I like the second film the most is it seems like every scene is is just on point. No, there's no wasted dialogue, no wasted scenes. Not to say the other two films are flabby; they're not, but. Mm-hmm. Every scene just has a real pop to it. And like the scene when uh, Hunter's interviewing the two lead detectives from the Yorkshire case. And they're on edge because they think this is a guy that's going to come in here like an internal affairs guy and he's fucking with them. And I just, it, it's, it, to me, you kind of get the weight of the other cops and you see how weariness sets into good men who really just have become apathetic to the whole thing. Yes, yes. You know, which I really, I, I like that. Um... There's a brutal scene with the after effects of a power drill, which I won't go too much into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a scene talking about that apathy and just, again, call it an old quaint notion, but police, you know, policemen having more of a, a duty to serve their community. But there's a line when one of uh, Pete's higher up says, Pete, what you're doing is a lousy job. No one would blame you if you resigned. And it just shows you how businesslike all this is. And, you know, you want to think of, of the police as these, you know, these people are going to do right by their community and not just, it's just like any other job. Right. Now you got a bad assignment, maybe jump off it. Mm. But Pete, you know, of course, I'm not fucking backing off this. And there's a scene when we see um, one of the characters' houses burning down. And I love the way they shot this because they don't show the house. What they show is, what they show, what they show <laughs> is the character looking through his, um, the window of his car. Uh-huh. And we see his face, but we see the reflection of their house burning down yeah. in the glass in the window. And we see his reaction. And it's a brilliantly done moment. Yes, it is brilliantly conceived moment um and then i gotta say to to close this episode out two reveals the first reveal which was right under our noses the whole time i mean i just got chills i I was stunned i hadn't put it together and when they kept referring to pete and his connection and and what this all meant and bj and everything else and it was just such a revelation to me Mm -hmm. um and then that's followed me even more surprising and, and unfortunately more downbeat ending yes um that kind of to the people we wouldn't be rooting for, to their, much to their pleasure, uh, all of this would get lost in the shuffle with everything else that was happening at that time in terms of the case. Yes, exactly. So, but yeah, those are all my notes. All right. So uh, I'll go over my, my scenes uh, and everything. My make or break is going to be the scene between, I believe it's Petty Constantine and BJ when they're in the van. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the acting in that scene is really, really good. And that's where you really see uh, Sheehan, that's really a great moment for him. Uh, actually, you know, the first time I watched the film, or while I was watching the film, I didn't put two and two together. That was the same person. Oh, uh, because I think he had some hair dye in the first one. Yeah, he had a little bit of red, and he looked very much like uh, it was a '70s. So he looked like he was very much inspired by like the, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of glam rock at the time. Because mm-hmm. he had like a purple velvet type or a burgundy velvet type suit on, and he had a little bit of a red stripe in his hair and. Speaking of Bowie, <laughs> yeah, he told a Swinton in the in the alleyway there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what does that make you think? What do you think I was thinking about BJ? Huh. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
I really like the scene between him and 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 the talking and stuff. And again, it comes down to a dialogue scene of all things. But really, that's what the scene, this movie, these, all three of these movies come down to. I mean, there's a lot of these really great moments of dialogue and quiet moments, and, and mixed with all this insanity sometimes. And uh, they're really really good. Uh, that's my make or break. My MVT for this is going to be Considine, obviously. Uh, he really carries the whole film on his shoulders, and you feel like you feel like with his character and the way he's acting, he's carrying the whole world on his shoulders in this film. And it's really, really brilliant the way he puts in a performance, and I still cannot believe the guy is a year younger than me. I'm like I'm like stunned right now. Uh, I didn't know that until just a few minutes ago, so that's why I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around it. Uh, my score uh, for the film is an 8.5 out of 10. Uh, it's certainly the best of the three, and it's a pretty amazing piece. Uh, I definitely recommend everybody check it out. I want everybody to check the whole trilogy out, but if you only want to check out one, this is the one to check out. So that's my thoughts on 1983. Your thoughts? Okay, make or break of the last two scenes. As incredible as everything is leading up to that, the revelations that are revealed. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I just I was slack jawed. Yeah, sledge, sledgehammer it. is what that was be called. Will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> And like I, I, yeah, some of the reveals, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. That I, I, I was kind of trying to piece it together, and I couldn't. And then, and then, with the reveal, with what BJ was talking about, oh my god! Yep. And uh, it just wow. And my MVT is also Patty. I mean, knockout performance. Um, the the web of in not intrigue, but the whole web of of the whole the labyrinthine kind of thing of the the film was a close second. But I got to go with Patty with the weight of the world on the shoulders. My score is a little bit higher than yours. It's an eight point seven five. Man, this is a strong strong film, and I yep. highly recommend everyone check it out. It's very very good stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I can't deny that uh, Danger Jamie was right about that second film. He told me this was a pretty amazing piece. So he was right. You were right, Dangerous Jamie, the Manchester Meat. I like to call him. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, so we'll just go ahead and go into the uh, next review, and uh, the, uh, that is in the year of our Lord, Red Riding in the year of Lord, nineteen eighty-three. And uh, this one is directed by Anand Tucker. Anand, is that right? Anand, I think. Anand, yeah. Oh, okay. So the plot synopsis for this one is the seemingly untouchable, corrupt West Yorkshire police, and the true evil mass behind behind uh, the child abductions and murders of the last fourteen years can't resist doing it again. Uh, against them, a fat, useless lawyer. That's pretty mean. And one remorseful kappa. So uh, it's kind of mean there. A fat, useless lawyer. I don't like that. So Nor do I. Being a chubby man myself, I don't really care, I don't really care for that. Either way, uh, this one is directed by Anand Tucker, who... Uh, this just seemed like the oddest choice to direct this one to me. But, but He's done nothing of any kind. I would, wa- I would watch nothing he's done in his filmography. Uh yeah, the only thing he's done is the girl with uh, wait, wait 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 oh he did uh, Shop Girl which I think is the uh, Steve Martin yeah yeah and I did mean to watch and when did you last see your father I meant to watch that oh oh no I did want to see that actually sorry yeah. with Colin Firth I yeah. think oh he did Hillary and Jackie which got some Oscar nominations he's done some uh, stuff oh he oh he just recently did Leap Year of all fucking things so interesting to go from Red Riding to Leap Year two totally different worlds there. But, uh, yeah, he's done some good. He's done some stuff. I like the Shop Girl movie. That was okay. Uh, but, you know, hey, whatever. Anyway, uh, back on points. Uh, this is the third part of our trilogy. So I'm going to kick it over to you. We're going to get to review into this and move on. Okay, so this one opens in 1974, though, the first one. And it opens at a wedding with a lot of familiar faces. And this is when things really start to slide into place. Yes. Um, this should gives us a pretty good indication immediately how deep everything goes uh, mm-hmm. as far as the corruption as far as everything else and I think it's all summarized quite nicely by a quote you hear in the trailer and that's uh, where the 
powers that be are uh, proposing a toast and they say to the north where we do what we want and i think that's a pretty apt description uh, by way of toast yeah you hear that a couple times in the film to the north yes uh, i like that yes i was thinking about canada <laughs> yes <laughs> um so yeah that kind of gives us some answers right away and we see bj the return of bj who as we just talked about a very interesting and tragic character uh-huh. um I got to say, throughout this film, David Morrissey's character Jobson reminded me of Patrick Wilson playing Night Owl. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He really did. It looked like him a little bit. Yeah, you know, you're uh, right. I didn't think about it that way, but you're right. Totally did. Um, what else have I seen David Morrissey in? You know, he's one of those guys. I know his name, obviously, because the name Morrissey. You think of Morrissey. Um, he's done a few things. He did. Uh, let me just see here. I'm looking through here. Did the re- he was in the reaping? Huh. Oh, that that turd. Basic yeah. Instinct too. <laughs> he did, yeah. Derailed. I saw that piece of shit. Oh, Captain Crowley's mandolin with your boy. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, that's a that's a turd. Hillary and Jackie. There's uh, that's oh, yeah. funny. Pops up again. How about that? Yeah, but he did a lot of BB, a lot of uh, British TV by the look of it. Yeah, yeah. I know I've seen him. Yeah, a lot of British TV. I'm looking through it now. I knew I'd seen him somewhere before. He's he's a he's got a he got an interesting face. Uh, I like him. Uh, I like him in this film a lot. I hope he does more stuff like this because he's really good in this one. Mm-hmm. There's actually some really good acting by him and uh, Paul Addy in this one. So, well, yeah, yeah. And see, the interesting thing about this film, though, uh, is just to look at 1974 now from an interior perspective. I keep calling this guy Paul Addy. His name's Mark Addy, like a fucking dumbass. That's okay. <laughs> hey, you, you can hear me okay, though, right? Yeah, he's popular in the states for this fucking sitcom he did, which is terrible. Mark Ad, that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how 1974 can be looked at now from an interior perspective as opposed to from an outsider looking in, much like uh, Garfield's character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I like one of the lines that we go back to Fitzsimmons, a lot of this, the, the familiar shots of the, the, the uh, what are those, like uh, the those stacks, those like industrial. Uh, Oh, you like smokestacks? Like smoke yeah, smokestacks and stuff, and like New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but you can see some some of the people go back there to look, and and they talk about the killings, and they say it never stops, not around here. And I think again, it just talks about something like the people that are marginalized and on the fringes that don't have a voice or a hand uh, against what happens to them. Right, um, right. Whichever they like that, and of course we get the put your hands flat on the desk again in this one. Oh yeah, it's just as brutal as the first time I've seen it. This one, I have to say, the sound design is exceptionally good. Um, from things like chairs squeaking, cigarettes burning, just a really attention to detail with things like that, which I don't know why it just jumped out at me more. The great sound of chickens, which will always disturb me now going forward. Yes, <laughs> yes. This one, I have to say, though, from an editing standpoint, felt more made for TV than the previous two. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit off the air. That's the one thing about this one. I don't understand why especially in like the last hour of it, it really feels like it was made with commercial breaks in mind completely. I mean, I, I just, trust me, I understand commercial breaks and I don't know if they show these on the BBC or over there in England. I don't know if they show them without commercials. I don't know. I don't know any of this. If anybody knows, you know, call us and let us know, but it totally felt edited for television mm-hmm. and it, you know, to the point to where it was fade to black and then come back in, fade back in. It was really, it was really disruptive to the feel of the movie. 
which is interesting because they, they got progressively more. So the first one, like I said, felt like most like a movie. Mm-hmm. The second one, despite being the best of the three, there were moments where it very much felt made for TV, and then this one very obviously made for TV. Yes, it's like it got this. this it's like it was running out of gas or something. I don't know. It's kind of a weird. That that was my biggest issue with this film. I think if it would have been edited better or kind of put together a little bit better, that this film would have been. I, I liked it the least of the three, but not by much. Mm-hmm. Um, this is interesting from a creative and story standpoint. They, they introduce a psychic, which I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That, that came out of nowhere. I was kind of like, whoa, where, where are we going now? You know. <laughs> well, the, the psychic thing, and they played off as legitimate, but it just it seems a bit bizarre to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's my second least favorite thing behind Satanist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the hand... The hand uh, to the to the forehead thing. Oh wait, yes, the third eye. Yeah, just a bit <laughs> nonsense. But um, you know, a funny thing happened in this. You know, I'm watching it early on. I couldn't really get behind Mark Addy's character Piggott until then. Something funny happened. He got charismatic to me, and and I believed in him much like he kind of started to believe in himself and what he was doing. Which at first he was very reluctant to get involved, and he's one of those guys that's happy to just get by on the fringes, but. Uh, you could see when he started to really care about what he was doing, there was a charisma that, that was born in him, I found. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, again, I'll say he was in The Full Monty. I remember that. And I've known him mostly for comedic roles. And here in the States, I don't know if he still does this show, if it's still on the air, or if it's just on reruns all the time. But he did a sitcom, a family sitcom here, where he plays an American kind of chubby dad. Uh, you know, uh, you know, home improvement type show type thing like oh, that. Wow. He Not- played Fred Flintstone in the Flintstones Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> well, we got to cover that next week. Uh, that's, that's on the top of the list. Yeah. I saw, I remember him in that, but he, I never saw that. I just remember seeing ads for it. Uh, but he, he's an interesting actor. He's really, really good in this. Uh, you're right. He, you despise him at first. He just seems to be, uh, a character that's given up. He doesn't want to be involved in anything. He just wants to get high. He just wants to drink. He just wants to listen to his uh, soul records and, and just disappear. And it is a good soul record collection he has. It should be noted. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but there are some moments here where he starts to change and you really get behind his character. And, uh, I really like that. Again, it's, it's showing you the flaws of humanity, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think they do that really well with every lead and every one of these. This one has two of them and David Morrissey and, uh, Mark Addy or Paul well, Addy, as I was calling him forever. Yes, exactly. Well, Morrissey's character is another one that you don't really, uh, you're kind of back and forth on him and, it's they they were they handled something that was difficult to handle in that they make him more I don't want to say sympathetic you get behind him despite some things because you see his resistance to some things that have happened in the past yes you have no re- you're right you have no reason to be behind this character because they show you a couple of things he's doing and he doesn't like it anymore but you could think to yourself well so what stand up but you know you do get behind him and i think it's one of those things his character is if i had to guess in this he's in his early 40s maybe that's the vibe i got and i started to think about what a lot of times men think about which is their mortality and their legacy mm-hmm. i think he thought about because there's an interesting line that in the second one when hunter uh, uh patty's character says to him when did when when did we stop being on the same side yeah and yeah. i think it shows that that jobson was a good cop and when he got into it he got in with for all the right reasons, and to make change and do good. But somewhere along the way, he lost his way, and I think this is him a little bit older now, and he's trying to, you know, before he goes, he, he can't live with himself having a legacy he's left behind. Yeah, you're seeing kind of like the wake-up the wake up uh, moment of his character from the beginning to the end of this film. Yeah. 
He's, he's waking up to what he really wants to be, and and he's kind of trying to figure out how he ever got to the position he's in, how he ever got into such a, you know, so, so he, how he ever got in so deep with this corruption and stuff. He just he's kind of baffled by it, and you can see it on his face. And just the sense of apathy, you just kind of well, you roll with it. It just uh, the yeah, scenes, the scenes like with the scenes with the hands on the table and the handcuffs and stuff. His face, you can tell he's just sick. He's mm-hmm. sick of this. He's done it so many times now, but he's just so sick of it now. He just he. It's almost like it's it, it's just killing him on the inside. Yep. Uh, there's a scene where we get a rat used to in- interrogate someone, which I, I didn't think they used much in the Western world. But yeah, again, wouldn't be the GGMTNC unless uh, some animals get hurt. Mm. <laughs> of course, you know it's fake, but still. Yeah, the rat interrogation thing. Uh, there's a great reveal of a man doing as much as a man can with his hands tied. Tied. What did I put here? Tied. As much as a man with his hands tied can do. Yeah. Which I think it's referencing stuff that that Morrissey's character does in the first one. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Again, some things that he's kind of one foot in, one foot out, trying to still tread water with the good. Um. This film, much more than even the first two, and they go into some dark places, but this one goes into the darkest places to the point where I almost, I I just, I was just, my jaw was open. I couldn't, the kind of, the worst kind of evil, I mean, exploiting power, you know, being I, blind to everything else. I did not see it coming. No, I, don't, I did it not. It took me all the way until the reveal to see that that was what was happening. Well, there's a few, again, this, this ends with a few stunning reveals. There's the first one, and then you get the one that just an absolute stunning reveal. And, and it's, I think, comment on a different role of uh, someone that we've seen throughout the three films in an abuse of power and the intersection of the abuses uh, between two different forces. Uh, and I don't want to say too much more than that. Yeah. Um, and then we just get more revelations heaped on top of each other where everything starts to make sense. And... The thing is, there's a, a wonderful monologue at the end uh, where one of the characters on a train just getting as far away from uh, the area as he can. And I think the thing I love most about the ending is not only does it hammer you with what's happened, but it hammers you because then you look back at every single thing that's happened up until that point and you think of how awful it was that so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that and what this means to that and what this means to that and what their motivations were and yeah, yeah. on and on and on. And that's the, that's the density of the piece. I mean, because you really feel, by the time you get to the end of this thing, you really feel the, the burdens and even the relief of certain other burdens on characters. You feel it, you feel it all closing out for you, you know, as, as, a whole, as a whole trilogy. And that's why I really appreciated being able to watch them back to back to back because it really felt like it took me through the ringer and you know, you know, like it, it rode me like a horse and put me away wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it really did. I mean, it really, it emotionally exhausted me, and it was really deep. And after it was done, I mean, the first thing I said to myself was, "Whoa, I didn't, well, I didn't the, expect that." There's a moment with a drill near the end of the thing. You think, Jesus, no! Like <laughs> yes. it just, it's, it's the darkest. Oh my God! Yeah, so dark. I was pretty amazed still at where it you know it took itself I, I still did not expect it to go that to that place those depths of depravity <laughs> i did not expect that i really didn't i kept thinking okay we're gonna find out something here i think i know what's going on and it's like smack across the face it's like oh yeah you thought what was going on how about this you know it's like whoa that did you really need to go there <laughs> i know and there's a great line in the film from the uh, uh from one character to another which i cannot say either because it'll give something away but it's pretty good. They say it to uh, John Piggott. 
And it's just like this moment of awakening for him. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about the wolf. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Again, we sound so cryptic reviewing these films. We really do. It's really, it's really a shame, but I really want people to enjoy them. So. I want them to be as kind of floored at each reveal as we were. Yes. Hopefully I'll remember to edit that out. If I didn't, then I don't think it ruined it for anybody, but I hope I will. I'll mark it down the spot, so hopefully I'll remember it. All right. Is that all your notes? Those are all my notes. Nice. Uh, again, this is the wrap-up of the trilogy, and in some ways that's where the weakness of the film comes through. I feel like, you know, it does feel like a little bit of a wrap-up in some spots. It doesn't feel like it stands alone by itself as much as the other two do. Uh, but you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why I got that feel from it. I don't know if it was the editing or not, but editing or not, but it just seemed like it felt like a conclusion as opposed to a standalone film where the other two kind of felt like standalone films a little bit more. But I think I agree with you, but I think also, uh, Anon, what's his name? Anon Taylor. Is that his uh, name? Tucker. Tucker. He was, you know, to give him fair play, he was the one that had to wrap it up. So, and I think the fact that it's wrapped up satisfactorily and this labyrinthine plot is wrapped up neatly and concisely is in some way a testament to the skill of the screenplay again in the direction. As of, even though it is a wrap-up, it doesn't feel like a wrap-up. Yeah, yeah. Like part I mean, of it, you have to wrap up all this dense stuff. Yeah, he had, I mean, he has to wrap it up. I mean, and it does do a good job of, of wrapping it up in a way that, you know, I wouldn't expect. I just felt, I felt like, you know, it, it felt like from the get-go it was going to be a wrap-up. And I, I don't know why I felt that way. I don't know if that's because I knew it was part three or if it was just the editing, I think, is what it really was. Uh, the mm-hmm. way it's edited and stuff, it just feels more like it's, you know, it's like it's chopped up a little bit more. Like it's trying to get to the point where it needs to get to it. Don't get me wrong. Once once it gets to where it gets, it needs to go. It really hammers you over the head, and it's really fantastic. Oh yeah. There's just some weaknesses in this one a little bit. Again, I liked uh, Mark Addy a lot in the film. Uh, we see some more of the corruption stuff. Again, I've wrote down I've, every every bit of notes I wrote down is I'll never look at handcuffs the same way again. It just will not happen. Uh, for me personally, this trilogy is a, a lot like a UK based version of The Wire in the way it's so dense. Yeah, totally. And the way he deals with corruption and cops and and reporters and and lawyers and all of these jobs, and, you know, land developers and John John Dawson, the Sean Bean character. I mean, you get all of these all of these jobs mixed in and and all these working hard people or hardworking people who, you know, who get caught up in some bad things, you know, and uh, that's that's really what I find really interesting is how easily. Uh, some people can be corrupted, and uh, it's just pretty amazing stuff. It really is. In a lot of ways, it's kind of bleak, but uh, you know, you have these characters in there that are like moments of hope in this bleakness. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I was really amazed once we got to the resolution. Uh, really fantastic. I actually thought Peter Mullen was really, really good in this film, Father Laws. I thought he was really, really good in this oh, yeah. one, in particularly. Uh, and again, BJ, you're right. You know that he was he was fantastic in this one again. Oh, uh, great moments. He has some great narration over scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like that when he starts, he's like, I am BJ and all this stuff. I mean, really fantastic stuff, man. It's a great shot of him walking up to a house. And I thought, what the fuck is getting ready to happen here? You know, <laughs> just, uh, you know, I mean, where, where, where's this one going to take me now? You yeah, know, because no by this point, you know, we've already had one other character discover something and we're like, oh, where the fuck are we going now? Yeah. Uh, so again, I can't talk about it. So. <laughs> I really feel bad about that. I, feel, I hate when we review films and we just, we're so cryptic, but again, it is what it is. Um, so I really don't have a whole lot more to add. I, I mean, I ask you, you know, and, and you agree. I mean, this is the weakest of the three films, but it's still not a weak film. By no stretch. It's still a very solid, solid movie. Uh, I do feel like, though, that you couldn't enjoy this one maybe as much if you didn't see the other two. 
no chance. Do not watch. You have to watch them all in order and as close together as possible to understand it or it will not you won't get it as much yeah i think the other two can stand alone but this one like we said is, is the wrap-up and really the only way you're really really going to absorb this one i think is by seeing the other two uh i don't know some people might like this one more uh because again this is not a bad film at all uh some people might like this film quite a bit more than the other two that's fine i think that you know everybody that sees these things is going to like uh, a different one more than the other I could see at first I thought I liked the first one more than I did the second one, but then after I watched the third one, I liked the second one more than I liked the first one. So mm-hmm. it was really this kind of weird kind of juggling act I was playing in my brain, you know? So uh, really good stuff, man. I mean, this so great, and I'm glad I saw them. I'm glad when I, I gave you that tidbit to pay attention that they were really dense. I'm glad I gave it to you because I know there was a lot of moments for me watching it where there was a lot of rewinding. So <laughs> Oh, for sure. And the sad, the unfortunate thing is sometimes it's not in the same film. It's the film prior or you know it just it's yeah i almost wish i would have had three monitors running yeah i know (laughs) so i could could go back and look at stuff but the the one good thing i can say about that is these films are incredibly they're going to be incredibly rewatchable and uh, i can't wait to watch the trilogy again i'm going to watch it again sometime soon i can't wait to watch it again because i want it to flow over me again in a different way because now i know everything so now i want it to flow over me in a different way kind of like when you go back and watch something again a mystery or something you want to see everything again well, you'll understand what the meaning is of things, and you'll yes. you'll see the motivations a little bit clearer. Exactly, and understand the significance of things when they're happening instead yep. of, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so I'll kick it back over to you for make or breaks and MVTs. Make or break is the um, closing monologue. Uh, again, fantastic by a really tragic, tragic character in the film. Yes. Um, I love that that closing monologue. Uh, I love the just. I really loved it. Um, I'm glad they ended with that because I think that person, much like the character, is in the shadows a lot, and it's nice to have them in the forefront to close it off because mm-hmm. they're really uh, involved in a lot of the heavy stuff that happens in the film. Um, my MVT is the the writing the wrongs of uh, the writing the wrongs of your father and and. Uh, another character, find the redemption, I guess, the redemption of, okay. of a man or of men, All right. uh, in the face of of what really is insurmountable corruption and 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 evil, to use the word. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I love that because it again, as as bleak as this stuff is and as dark as it is, I love that uh, in the face of all that, we see people that find something within themselves. And it, again, this that might sound silly to say or whatever, but I love that we see that uh, right. that redemption. And my score is an eight out of ten. Nice. Um, again, I just loved, loved. If I had to put them all together, I'd probably give them like an eight point five out of ten as a combined thing. Yeah, yeah, the very solid trilogy of films. Yes, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I give them as a. I mean, I guess I'd have to get an aggregate score out of my three scores, but uh, it would probably be close to that. Yeah. Uh, okay, my make or break is going to be the scene between BJ and Father Laws. I found that uh, both disturbing, oh. heartbreaking, and. Uh, hypnotizing all at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a, that was an amazing scene between two very good actors. She Sheehan, who's uh, an up and comer, and Peter Mullen, who is just a uh, very, very, very good character actor. So, uh, really good scene. My MVT, I'm actually going to give it to Mullen this time uh, because I like him so much in this film. Uh, I don't want to talk about it any more than that. I just think that the acting was ex- exceptional. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, he's not a Hollywood matinee idol. But he's one of those actors who I feel like he's never really working too hard. You know, no, he's, he's, he's great every man. Yeah, he's got that magic touch, you know, that some actors just have, character actors just have. 
and uh, he really has it. My score for the film is a 7.5, just a little bit below my first score, 7.75. I really like this film a lot. Um, it's just a fantastic trilogy. I really recommend you guys check it out if you get a chance. Hopefully, it'll get released on DVD pretty soon uh, so everybody can check it out. And But if it is on your uh, uh, your cable provider, I know it is here at least on the States. If it is there, uh, you couldn't go wrong just spending, you know, I don't know what it would be, 16, 18 bucks between three films. It's pretty inexpensive. Well yeah, it's pretty inexpensive when you consider a night out at the movies or something like that. So, And further to that, I know it is if you have a region-free DVD player, which you all should have. Yes. Uh, this is available from region two. It's a region two disc. Uh, you can get them. So there you go. Uh, it's available on amazon.co.uk. Yep. It is on order. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, so uh, that is our review of the Red Riding Trilogy. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back with some feedback. So we will be back right after this. Hi, this is Chris. And this is Frank. And we are from the Are You Serious podcast, and we are here with... Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. I think that's awesome, but I also think that I could do the same thing. What are you talking about? It's just great to have you here and to be able to talk to you, even with all the stuff I've said. Don't shoot it. So I guess just to let people know, we, we cover movies, video games, and we talk about politics, TV, and uh, people who bother us. Basically, we just skewer pop culture in general. I got a bad feeling about this. I think the show is awesome. You should think it's awesome, too. Don't get excited. Frank can get a little full of himself sometimes. I know. The Are You Serious Podcast is available on iTunes and at areyouseriouspodcast.com. The way of the samurai is found in death. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Every day when one's body and mind are at peace, one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows, rifles, spears, and swords. Being carried away by surging waves, being thrown into the midst of a great fire, being struck by lightning, being shaken to death by a great earthquake. Falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day without fail, one should consider himself as dead. Nigga, I don't want to talk. I'm on one ghost gun briefcase in its equilibrium. It's the killer on your block. All right, we are uh, back with some feedback here. We got uh, some good jams there, man. That's uh, some good stuff. I hope I faded it out. I don't know if I did or not. There it goes. There it goes. <laughs> just to give everybody a little behind the scenes, I literally just did about 120 miles an hour to get home in time to record this show. So <laughs> Much appreciated. I am Much wired and ready to go. Now I just got to get this blow off of this stripper's tit, and we're good to go, man. <laughs> All right, I'm All right. ready when you are, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's see here. Email time. Um, okay, this first one is from Fozzie Bear. Ah, yes, the Foz. And uh, the Foz has a podcast, which is, I believe it's called, what is it called? The, the Podcast Podcast? Yes, it's very meta. The Podcast Podcast. Yes. Fozzie says, mea culpa. Hey guys, this letter is completely superfluous and unnecessary, but I thought I should send an apology. For a long time, your good friend Randy, Damocles66 on Twitter, encouraged me to listen to you, but I stayed away. reason for that was solely based on my interpretation of the name of your show. For some reason, I saw the word gentleman and assumed it was like a gentleman's club full of sexism and dripping with jackass dudisms. <laughs> after, well, right after I say snort blow off a stripper's tit. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I finally got sick of Randy's nagging and downloaded an episode, I found out how wrong I was. As it turns out, your show's title is not ironic at all. Rather dead on. 
You two are complete gentlemen and show respect to women, all races, sexual preferences, and most recently, animal rights. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say again and unnecessary, I'm sorry for judging you before I listened. But more importantly, I wanted to thank you for a great show and for being complete and total gentlemen each and every week. Keep up the good work, and I'd love to have you guys on my show soon. Sincerely, Jason, a.k.a. at Fozzie Bear on Twitter. Yes. Uh, actually, and, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, and, and for those that want to follow uh, the Foz, it is B-A-R-E. Yeah, Fozzie Bear, B-A-R-E. So, And uh, I talked more about that at the beginning of the show, about uh, meeting up with him and stuff. He's a very nice gentleman, and uh, I look forward to being on the show. I'm going to be on the show soon. I don't know if I said that at the top of the show, but I am going to be on the show next week or the week after, something like that. Yeah, and I'll, I'd like to swing something, too, uh, yeah. to get in the mix on that. I'd, I'd love to. Guy does a fantastic interview. Just let me say that. Fantastic. All right. Actually, I'm quite nervous about going on the show. <laughs> oh, you'll be fine, Sammy. Yes. Uh, I do want to say that, you know, in regards to his thing very quickly, uh, I think, you know, Rick and I tend to live by a rather simplistic philosophy in life, and that's due unto others. Yes. Um, you know, uh, so that I think if you, you do that in life, it's going to serve you well across the board. So Yes. It's not my place to judge anybody. Nope. Nope. A uh, couple corrections. I sent myself the, the customary weekly reminder email. <laughs> um, I'd mentioned that Han from Enter the Dragon was the uncle in Don't Play With Fire. Uh, yeah, yeah, you did mention that. It, it was not him. I looked it up, and it wasn't him. Uh, and I also was, because I was doing something as I was writing it, I was blathering on about Pi May being in the mystery of chess boxing, and he was not. So two okay. uh, All right. uh, Hong Kong fuck-ups from William. Uh, so I just <laughs> wanted to rectify that. And the next one is uh, from good friend Uncool Cat. And thankfully with my... Um, sickness he was able to get us in his revised email nice uh and now it says i'll just read the revised version yes uh, yes yes dear sirs great show as usual hearing both of you speak of your dislike of satanists in film made me wonder if either of you have seen the film the Co- uh, convent it's hilarious how the satanists in this film are portrayed as goth losers even though <laughs> they are successful in summoning, mm-hmm. up, summoning up demons think kevin and mcdonald and dave foley simon and hecubus from kids in the hall and you get the rough idea Nice. As for Satanists in films, personally, I love the crazy bastards. Put, putting a Satan worshiper in film is practically a guarantee that I'll see it. There's seldom been a film with the, that conceit I haven't enjoyed. Race with the Devil, Satan's Blood, Rosemary's Baby, The Devil Rides Out, Brotherhood of Satan. The list goes on and on of films I adore with those wacky motherfuckers. Sure, I don't believe a thing Satanists believe in, but it's usually a fun plot device. And I don't believe in Godzilla either, but that's never prevented me from enjoying <laughs> those films. <laughs> um... And I was happy to hear there's a fellow Dreamcatcher fan out there as well. I love the insanity of the novel, and the movie kicked it up a few thousand notches, especially the ending. It seemed Kazan embraced the lunacy of the novel and took it even further. I also really liked how he set it up as an atmospheric film about a group of friends isolated in the woods, and just when you think you know what to expect, he throws everything but the kitchen sink at you. Both the novel and the movie seem to take pleasure in defying the audience's expectations, and shit weasels are perhaps one of the greatest monsters of all time. Keep up the super duper work, Chris. And Chris, you can find Chris at his blog, uncoolcat.blogspot.com. I have no doubt. I don't know if they're one of the greatest uh, monsters of all time, but they certainly are one of the scariest monsters of all time. Uh, I do not want to ever run into a shit weasel. Uh, no, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not. Uh, those movies he mentioned, you know, the funny thing is I like some of those movies of the ones I've seen. Yeah. Race with the, Race with the Devil's fun. Mm-hmm. Um Rosemary's Baby's good. Uh, yeah, there's some good stuff in there, but I just, like you and I said, Sam, I just think they're ridiculous that I think yeah. you know, I just want to punch them in the face and watch them crumple like a, a cheap lawn chair. <laughs> yeah, the 70s are awash in, uh, whatchamacallit, in Satanism. 
hate pentagrams and yeah. nonsense. It was like the ultimate fear, it seemed, for people. And I don't know. Well, it, it's like with Ty West, when he, with him hearkening to that with the uh, host of the devil stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, and I think that's it for email. Let's move on to voicemail. All right. Let me see if I can get one queued up here. Hopefully it won't stop playing before another one queues up. Hang on a second. I'm a little off my game, but I'm going to get back on that game. Okay. Queuing it up, and it should start playing now. Hey, gents. This is Mike in uh, Pensacola down here in Florida. I uh, just wanted to call in with a few things from uh, last week's show. Um, I think I'm definitely in the wheel camp on Argento. Uh, definitely, I think he's a better, uh, more artistic filmmaker uh, than Martino. But you know what? The, Martino might be a um, better technical filmmaker. You know what I mean? Um, like, Ar- Argento's got that, those flourishes, but Martino's just solid. Um, so, and with Devil Worshipin' movies, the one that really got to me back in the 70s, you know, when they had the big run, was Race with the Devil. I don't know if you guys have seen that one with the War Notes, Peter Fonda. Uh, actually, TCM just had it on on their underground on Friday night. But that movie, I was about six years old when I saw it for the first time at the drive-in. That one stuck with me. I still get kind of creeped out when I'm down some dirt road. Hey guys, Sean from Chicago calling. My apologies, I hit a button and we went to another voicemail. <laughs> what a mess, man. I'm a total mess tonight. I'll tell you what, I'm going to replay that from the beginning. All right, Mike again. Let's take it from the top. Top from the top. Here we go. <laughs> hey, gents, this is there Mike in uh, Pensacola down here in Florida. I uh, just wanted to call in with a few things from uh, last week's show. Um, I think I'm definitely in the wheel camp on Argento. Uh, definitely, I think he's a better, uh, more artistic filmmaker uh, than Martino. But you know what? The, Martino might be a um, better technical filmmaker. You know what I mean? Um, like, Ar- Argento's got that, those flourishes, but Martino's just solid. Um, so, and with Devil Worshipin' movies, the one that really got to me back in the 70s, you know, when they had the big run, was Race with the Devil. I don't know if you guys have seen that one with the War Notes, Peter Fonda. Uh, actually, TCM just had it on on their underground on Friday night. But that movie, I was about six years old when I saw it for the first time at the drive-in. That one stuck with me. I still get kind of creeped out when I'm down some dirt road in the middle of the night by myself, you know, probably burying the body myself. But get creeped out uh, thinking, you know, I'll run across a bunch of guys in robes doing a, a ritual, and, and then they'll follow me around for the rest of my life. Um, speaking of Argento, uh, you guys are talking about how bad he's shit in the bed lately, and I definitely agree with you on that one. He's, he's laying in a waterbed full of shit. Um, I, another director that seems to be joining him there, I watched Survival of the Dead this oh, week, and oh my God. Uh, I don't know what Romero is thinking, but um, he just needs help. The CGI is awful. The, the the plot makes no sense whatsoever. It's it's mm. worse than Diary of the Dead. It's oh. just not good at all. And I'm really disappointed because he's an important director to me in the same way that Argento is. And it just seems like these guys have, have you know lost the thread here in the last few years. Um, and then finally, it has just been eating away at me. You guys mentioned it during the show with Metal Mikey. You mentioned that goddamn you're the hunter from the future, so I had to go back and watch it. And uh, I hadn't seen it since I was in high school. I remember it was one of those movies that we kind of stumbled upon during one of those all-night D&D parties, you know, fueled up on Mountain Dew when I was in high school. Um, and just we laughed our asses off then. And as I said on the, the boards or on Facebook, it is uh, aged like a smelly cheese. That, that thing is still hilarious. My favorite scene, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, because, God, you know, they've got to definitely check it out. But uh, 
Yor actually throws a spear, takes down a pterodactyl. Well, it comes down. Yeah, it comes down the ground. It's not dead. So then he punches it in the face. <laughs> then he picks the son of a bitch up and hang glides in to save his girl. From yes. The, the overlord. I mean, it, it's fantastic. I, I have never seen anything, you know, the fur boat in the movie. It's just, it's just a fantastic movie. And talk about a golden goddess. Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you guys later. I appreciate, uh, you mentioned in my show, uh, nightmaretheater.blip.tv there, uh, where you can go and watch episodes of my TV show. And I hope you had fun at the four hound weekend there, Sammy. Um, I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks. Bye. All right. I did have fun at uh, Horror Hound Weekend, uh, again, like I said at the beginning. So, yes, he covered a lot of stuff in his, in his uh, voicemail, so I'll try to go over some of it. Uh, yeah, I've heard nothing but bad things about Survival of the Dead now. The only person I know that kind of liked it at all was Vishnu, and that's because he saw it at Midnight Madness. I have to think that it has something to do with the atmosphere there, but uh, I'm still going to check it out. Uh, just, you know. And you still haven't seen Diary, have you? Uh, no, I, I've kind of given up on on Romero after hearing everything I heard about Diary. I yes. won't watch Survival. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can't do it, man. I, I do agree with him what he said, though. I think Martino is is, is more reliable. Yeah. Um, I just think he's a better storyteller than Argento is. I, I actually think, I disagree with him in one aspect. I think I should think that Argento is a better technical filmmaker because uh, he can move a camera a lot better. He can kind of come up with yeah, creative shots. Yes, stuff like that. He's more technically inclined. Martino just seems to be very much more by the numbers, I guess. So, but in a good way. In a good way, you yes. can count on him to give you a certain level of quality. Whereas Argento, he's sort of like that diva singer where you could get a knockout performance, or you could get them in their <laughs> stuck in their uh, dressing room all night. Yes, their ribcage Whitney uh, Houston appearance, uh, Tootie Bubble. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the Tootie Bubble. I didn't think we'd hear that tonight. No. no. <laughs> Uh, well, I've been sick enough that. Uh, oh, we don't, we don't want to talk <laughs> about those tootie bubbles. <laughs> into that, but but I, I think he sold your to anyone who hasn't seen it. <laughs> oh yes, if you haven't seen your, uh, it's not the second coming of uh, cinema history or anything, but it's oh, it's it's a classic. Just of I, I don't even know what. Ever since we started doing the show, we've talked about it, and I've actually watched some of it since we started doing the show because I have a copy of it. And uh, wow, I mean, just wow, your is is special. <laughs> Yeah, I, like I told you, Sam, I saw it in theaters with my dad, and I think that was the, the, the great crime of the cinematic century that Margaretti pulled in somehow getting your released in, in North yes. American theaters. Yeah, in modern times, your dad would probably be arrested for child abuse. Taking <laughs> <laughs> him to see your, but yeah, yeah good stuff. <laughs> yes, and uh, also the robes and Satanists. Yeah, even if you come along a dirt road and you see a bunch of people wearing Snuggies nowadays, I'm, I'd be kind of concerned. Yes. <laughs> All right, next voicemail. Hey guys, Sean from Chicago here. Just got out of seeing The Runaways. Want to know what uh, what you guys thought about this movie? I don't know. To me, uh, it was an ex- you know it was a, just an example of way too much style over substance. Kristen Stewart to me is like bored in every role she's in. I don't know. There was no fun in the movie. Uh, I mean, they hardly ever really played shows. I mean, I think I only saw them really play two shows. Other than that, it was just pretty much a movie about little girls laughing. Anyway, I want to know what you guys thought about it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was very well shot. I mean, it had a great 70s feel. But to me, the story and characters were just kind of bland. And so were, surprisingly, Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart. Anyway, uh, that's what I thought. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Um, I haven't seen it yet. I know you, I don't think you have either, Will. Am I correct? No, that's correct. I know that Christine over at Paracinema, she loved it. Um, I'm a fan of the music from The Runaway, so... 
I'm going to watch it at some point in time. I'm not going to run out and see it, but uh, I am a little concerned. Uh, Chris, Christian, Christian, is it named Kristen or Kirsten? Kristen? Yes, I think. Yeah. Who cares? I think it's Kirsten Dunstan, Kristen. Yeah. Who really gives a shit? The Twilight Girl. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm hoping that this is the first film where she doesn't run her fingers through her hair every five minutes. That's my biggest problem with her. She runs her hands through her hair in every movie. And, it's yeah, she, and it, it, he is right in saying she just seems hopelessly bored in every role she's in. Yes, she really does. It's like she just doesn't really want to do this for a living, but the money's so good, she just kind of has to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, that's that's how I interpret it. So, All right, next one. Hey, gents, Drew Bert. Um, listen to the All the Colors of the Dark review right now. Um, digging the Martino love. Definitely one I need to check out. <clears throat> I haven't seen as much Martino as I would like. Um, but um, So I just had a quick... Giallo question. I think this film's a Giallo. A friend of mine had listed it as a favorite of his, and it's called uh, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's a Giallo. Maybe it's not. Um, but I figured if anybody would know about it, you guys would, and what you think of it. Um, maybe OTC has even covered it. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, just curious what you guys thought of that film. Uh, that's it. Okay, bye. Right. Uh, Will, me and you have talked about this film before. I haven't seen it. I think maybe you have. Uh, I have not seen it, but I am familiar with Luciano Ercoli's filmography because uh, I've seen some of his other Chiali's, So Right. Um, yeah, but I think it's got a great title, a great shallow yeah, title. We've talked about it before. Somehow, some way, it's come across our, our bow before. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. how. I'm sure. I don't think uh, Outside Sims actually ever covered it, but I might be wrong. They've covered a lot of films. I know that uh, CD covered the Death Walks on High Heels, Death Walks at Midnight, uh, Double Bill of Ercoli's. Um, uh, yes, yes, yes. That's quite right. some time ago. That's how I'm familiar with Ercoli, having seen those films. Yes. I remember so that. I, I, I would say check it out. I mean, it's got some, some Euro, Euro, Euro cult names in it. Mm-hmm. So I would certainly check it out. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out at some point. So Who knows? We might even do it on the show at some point. Yes. All right. Next voicemail. Rupert, call back. Hey, gents. Rupert, real quick. I uh, just listened to Dangerous Jamie's voicemail and um, wanted to firstly say thanks to him for the recommend on the uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin score, which I I still have not seen that movie. I've been meaning to for a long, long time. Um, I think before, just when DVDs were coming out, somebody was telling me about that one. Um, anyway, uh, but also wanted to sort of agree with Jamie regarding... Um, Dreamcatcher. Uh, I don't know what it is about that movie. I only saw it in the last year for the first time. Um, it was in the holy fucking shit section at uh, Cinephile Video, one of my favorite video stores in LA, and rented it and watched it with my wife, and we were just like, wow, what the fuck is going on with this movie? And yeah, it does fall apart in the back end, but it's just... <clears throat> it's still got a great suspense to it that I really wouldn't have expected. And just this whole, like, wow, I have no idea what's going on. It's okay. Some of the dialogue and the camaraderie bullshit is, um, it's, I think it's going to be sort of a cult favorite. I mean, I think it already kind of is <clears throat> among genre fans, uh, of just weird, silly films of that type. Um, I'm definitely going to come back to it. I'm definitely going to buy it. So, Anyway, uh, just wanted to uh, say that stuff, and I'm done. Okay, bye. 
I think the most bizarre thing about Dreamcatcher is the pedigree that's behind it and that it got made. I think that's the what the fuck moment of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you're talking about a movie where flatulence is a main character for a good uh, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you start getting, I mean, again, I think it goes back to the fear. I think everybody has fears uh, like that. I actually read a long time ago an uh, interview with Stephen King or maybe him just writing uh, some kind of a you know, essay or something about it and about how he had used the restroom and when he gotten up there was blood in the in the bowl there. And that put the fear of God in him that something was wrong. And obviously, you know, something might be wrong. You might need to get that checked out. But and he really wrote the whole story on that. And he wrote a massive fucking novel on this fear of, you know, shitting blood and everything else. So I don't know. Disturbing. I don't even like to think about it, honestly. Maybe that's the reason why I didn't like Dreamcatcher that much, because it just bothered me too much. Maybe. Yeah. It just I don't know. At the time, I was a little bit younger and yep. kind of got the rug pulled out from under me because I hadn't read the book at the time, which it was rare. I read a lot of his stuff. But, have you seen yeah. Have you seen the class of Nukemheim films? Yes, I have <laughs> seen at least one of them. I think there's a scene where somebody uses the bathroom or something or something comes out of somebody's belly button and falls in the toilet or something. Uh, that rings a bell. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, any of our listeners out there, but that scene disturbed me to no end. And so I guess, let's just be honest, anytime you're using the restroom, you don't want anything going wrong <laughs> for multiple reasons. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Number one or two. Well, you know what still repulses me is um, in Total Recall, what's his name? The little baby um, prophet. That, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what was the name of the character? Klaatu or I don't know. I don't know if it was Klaatu. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, it's like the guy opens his shirt and this, and he, this <laughs> baby prophet's, you know, yeah. mumbling something yeah. to so, Arnie. And sounds like just, Henry Silva when he talks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just pretty repulsive crazy all right enough of that enough to talk about the bathroom next voicemail hello gentlemen this is tom dj calling from better in the dark laboratories in brooklyn i just you know i'm relaxing today just finished uh, watching danger diabolic by mario Bava. yeah boy that was a mindfuck but <laughs> i listened to your most recent episode uh all the colors of fire and you know you're not the first person recently to tell me about this Edwidge Fenich woman, and I'm kind of curious, as some has two people who I trust and who I, uh, you know, uh, respect, if you will, as a peer, I was wondering where would a person begin uh, if they want to sample uh, mm-hmm. this young woman? Well, I guess she's not that young anymore, but back then she was young. <laughs> Still hot, this though. young woman's uh, pleasures, if you will. Just a couple of, you know, like I said, a couple of, like, you know, a couple of uh, suggestions to light the way down the path. As always, you guys are doing a great job, and thank you very much for running my and Derek's promo for the upcoming uh, May Nightmare on Elm Street episode, and we will talk to you later. Have a great day. Bye. All right, that was uh, Tom DJ from uh, Better in the Dark Laboratories, the Better in the Dark podcast. Uh, okay, Will, that's a challenge. Where would you start with some Finnick? I don't think you can go wrong with any of the Martino ones. So uh, yeah. all the colors of the dark. Your vice is a locked room. Mm-hmm. Uh, strange vice of Mrs. Ward. Uh, what else? She did a Euro crime film that's actually that I have that's on. It's a bit of an odd film. You and I and Mike Malloy talked about it. Uh, mean Frank and Crazy Tony. Ah, yes, yes, that's right. She's in that for a bit of a different thing. Then you get into her Policewoman series to see a bit more of her range, as it were. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, actually quite known as a, uh, a lot of people might not know this, and we didn't talk about it on the show. Uh, Bill and them talked about it a little bit, though. She's actually quite known as a comedic actress as well. So 
Yeah, like we said, good good stuff from the Fennec. Uh, you know, I think that's really where you can you can get a good uh, idea as to what she's all about. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that those are the best places to start. The Strange Vice, Miss Ward, All the Colors of the Dark, those films. Your vice is a locked room. Yeah, yeah definitely look into the Martino, Gialli, and... Uh, and thriller aspects, and maybe if you can get a hold of some of Martino's, I guess he made, yeah, he made some sex comedies with her. I think he did, so they're probably okay. I haven't really seen a lot of those Italian sex comedies, though. To be honest with you, it's not really a genre that's very prevalent yeah. to find in America. Yeah, I'm not all that interested either, quite frankly. <laughs> Only the nudity uh, to sound yeah. piggish again. Sorry, Fozzie. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you guys are great. You guys are great. Oh yeah, yeah, boobs, boobs. <laughs> all right, all right, next, uh, next voicemail. Here we go. Hello, gentlemen. This is Yakuza Mashuga. First time caller, quite possibly last time caller, Whoa, depending wait. on how dorky I sound. <laughs> um, regarding last week's question, <clears throat> well, considering my love for Italian exploitation of all makes and models, I definitely prefer Giallo over Slasher. That's right. I do love my Jalo, <laughs> especially with a little Cool Whip dabbed on top. <laughs> okay, I see this is going to be my last voicemail after all. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, Sammy, on the new addition to the Samurai family. Yep. And we'll have a fantastic, well-deserved vacation. Adios. Yeah, that uh, the new addition to the family is is because of my rich cool whip. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> wow, yes, we're recording at night, and the moon, the moon's full here, so maybe that's uh, <laughs> maybe that has something to do with my tastelessness. Yes, that was Yakuza Mashuga. I think we got an email from him last week, I believe. Yes, we did, and I've been in correspondence with Yakuza via Facebook. Ah, nice, nice, nice. Is he a friend of mine? I don't know. Uh, uh, I think so. I think so. Under his real name, I guess. I don't know. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Yes. Okay. Never really know. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, next voicemail. A gentlemanly haiku. Subscribe, listen, learn. Puts laughter in manslaughter. Stay premium, gents. It's Rach here, by the way, and that's my haiku that I've posted um, on iTunes. I thought I'd recite it to you because it's on the Aussie iTunes and I think that you can't see it. So I just thought I'd drop in and let you know. See ya. All right. That was Rach from uh, Opinions.blogspot.com, which I think we've been giving out the wrong. Uh, we've been giving the S in there, and uh, that's my bad. I think it says R-A-C-H mediaopinions.blogspot.com I already wrote that down in my list which I got to get another piece of paper because um, it's being scribbled over so many times now yeah. it's yeah you can sometimes hear it but yes yeah, I and can actually see her review because I can just we can access the Australian uh, iTunes yeah guys just to give everyone a little insight Vish had mentioned this to us a long time ago when when we thought otherwise if you want to see other countries um, iTunes reviews you just get under the bottom where the country uh, logo is and click to whatever country you want to go to yep you can check out Canada, the States, UK. Uh, I seem to I checked out. I've, I've checked out almost every country to see if anybody else is listening to us. But some of, them, of course, you know, probably not. Oddly, n- to us. not that many listeners in Bhutan for some reason. Yes, can't figure that out. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. You go to, if you read through them. Uh, yeah. Okay. So there's Rach. I, I asked her to send some voicemail in. I, I love her accent. So. And I love that she responded to the haiku thing. You're yes. awesome. <laughs> yes. All right, this next voicemail I don't think you've heard yet, but this is this is an interesting masterstroke here. Check this one out. 
so there I was, Horror Hound Weekend, Indianapolis. I was listening to two retards argue about which sack of meat played Jason the best, <laughs> like I give a shit. I was just marking time, till my cell phone popped up with that one text message. I'm here. There weren't many in that crowd that had a fucking clue what that text message held from the store for them. There was no suitable welcoming committee. But then I looked, and through the crowd, there he was. Metal Mikey. (laughs) I only prayed that having Metal Mikey on this side of the glass would balance out the awesome on the outside and keep the fucking windows of the hotel from blowing in and and killing four or five virgins that had just had their moms drop them off in a carpool. Mikey and I moved with a purpose through the crowd, avoiding the bargain basement Jasons and the women that looked like they were 7-Eleven meat products and platform boots. It's like Linnea Quigley had cloned herself. And I don't mean young Linnea Quigley. I mean women that went down hard in the 80s and somehow found enough blower meth to bubble around down there and never come up for air since. But I'm burning fucking time here. Let me move on. The crowd was scurrying towards us, away from something. Something that had entered the hotel before we could get there. Before we could contain the situation. There he was at the entrance, like Gene Simmons, backlit, only with Jesus' DNA. It was the samurai, goddammit. Oh, fuck, I'm at the two-minute minute. Hey, it was great seeing you. Thanks. Look forward to the next time we can get together, Rick. Take care. Hi, Will. Hi, everybody. Randy here. Bye. Oh, good old Randy. Oh, man. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant, man. I mean, I laughed my ass off. We had a great time uh, hanging out at Whorehound. Randy is a blast. Uh, I look forward to the time when you can uh, hang out with him. He's a, a gentleman of the highest order. I'll tell you, if for no other reason to, than to get my own story told in Randy fashion, <laughs> yes. is inspiration enough to make my way to Indy. My favorite part of that is women who look like 7-Eleven meat products and, and high heel boots. <laughs> Yes, there's so much gold in that. I didn't even hear half of it because I was laughing. I'll send you it. I'll send it to you after the show's over. Good stuff. Thanks, Randy. Yes, thank you, Randy. All right. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say. All right, next voicemail. Outstanding. All right, that was the voicemail from Doc. Doc Zom. Nice. He was a little tired, I think. He explains himself here in a second. Hang on. I got another one here. Well, I woke up Sunday morning <laughs> with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad. So I had one more for dessert. <laughs> This is Dr. Zum, and I just woke up. <laughs> okay, that was the end of that one. <laughs> uh, nice little Sunday morning coming down, I believe the name of that song. Yes, that's by my man, Yes, Mr. Cash. Yeah, written by, yeah, sung by him, written by Mr. Chris Christopherson, yes. Yeah. All right, uh, next voicemail. My inner chi must not be strong this morning. <laughs> it is not overpowering the answering machine. <laughs> So, with that, I will tell you that I watched Midnight Cowboy last night. I bought it at Walmart for $6. 
Nice. I put a new doorknob on my basement door. I bought some <laughs> banana cream pie, yo play yogurt, <laughs> and then I watched the double douche. <laughs> also, so, let's go. Let me pause that. It sounds like a sexual adventure took place, and I don't even want to know <laughs> what yes. happened. Yes. Go Mountaineers. Also, it's cold again here. Also, Jesse James is a queer. Wow. And I'm going to go have a beer if it's near. Ciao. All right, that was the end of his voicemail. So I don't know what's going on at the back end of the thing. But anyway, doorknobs, banana, banana cream pie, yogurt, and midnight cowboy. Yeah, sounds like an adventure to me. Yes. <laughs> Hope he wipes off that doorknob if I ever show up at his house. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking dirty Sanchez on that fucker. <laughs> Next voicemail. Well, I never spent much time at school, but I taught ladies plenty. Good old Colt Severs. So, apparently he's been filmed with Farrah Fawcett, Sally Field, Bo Derek, Cheryl Tiggs, Raquel Welch. I'll never make him president. He's got the best first ladies. Some days he's got them as far as the eye can see. Oh, he also was the stuntman who made Redford such a star. He made Eastwood look so fine. And he would also kiss the dirt so Bart could kiss and flirt. Because he's the lonely stuntman that made a lover out of Bart. Uh, yeah, Colt Severs, great stuff. I remember the, the fall guy from my childhood. Um, Actually, it was the first time I ever got caught shoplifting was I stole a little mini Falkai truck and my mom made me take it back to the shop uh, uh. with a between the legs. Um, I always remember the end of the, the the opening credits when he was sitting in the bar uh, with a cigarette. <laughs> um, but I remember most, most episodes was really just an excuse of how they could make a big jump with that truck. So I'd just be interested to know how many trucks they went through. So I happy days, ta-da. The interesting thing about Brian's voicemail there is he says the first time he got caught shoplifting. <laughs> yes. I like to know about the other how many times he got caught. And I really am amazed that, uh, and, I, and to call, color me dim-witted or something here, but I really didn't think the fall guy translated very well to other countries. I don't know. if I'm going to assume that Brian didn't grow up here in America. Um, no, but I think he visited here. He had family in Canada and I believe in the States. Okay. Uh, it, it was a pretty big show though. Maybe that a satellite, who knows what, uh, yeah. I mean, well, nowadays with, uh, you know, Torrance and everything, you, you know, everybody can watch everything. Mm -hmm. But, uh, back then I just didn't, I had no idea. So very interesting. And then I got this, this weird voicemail, but I think Brian sent this as well. Let's check this out. It's kind of weird. Has sent a text to landline message to you. It's a text to landline. No charge <laughs> to you to hear this message. Press any key. <laughs> uh, no. Wireless customer with mobile number six one. Blah 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 blah. Let's just blah 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 blah. Let me fast forward a little bit there. Zero zero five. Sorry, Brian. Send a text to landline message to you at no charge to you. Ah, tis a sad day. The stabilizer is only available on instant view until the 1st of April, oh. and then gone for good. Oh. Ooh. All right, that was it. <laughs> that was Brian. Uh, yes. Text a landline message. I forgot his number was in there. Good thing you uh, blurted it all out. I think we'll be good to go. I hope so. Yeah, I think it'll be fine. <laughs> My apologies, Brian. <laughs> Thank you for that, and, and uh, it is a sad day. Uh, I think we all need to wear our black mesh shirts in mourning that... <laughs> Peter Goldson won't be on Instant Watch anymore. 
Yeah, they'll get Rambo up there. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail from uh, this is a good old friend of the show. Let's see if he's uh, positive or negative this time. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Bill. I uh, just wanted to give you kudos on a great review of all the colors of the dark. Uh, I actually thought it was pretty cool that it worked out that we both covered the same movie. Uh, it was nice to hear what you guys thought on something you know that we had been talking about. So uh, I'd be curious to see what people thought of it um, with both of us covering covering the same movie in the same week. Uh, maybe something we do again in the future. But uh, yeah, no, I uh, spot on review. Uh, I think I liked the film a little bit more than you guys did, um, and I kind of wish you had gotten a little bit more into George Hilton. I thought he actually was kind of the glue that really made that film work. I mean, you guys mentioned his part, but it wasn't as um, standout. It was more standoutish than I thought it kind of, you guys talked about, but that's uh, this is just my opinion. I'm a big, I'm a big Hilton fan, so, uh, and really enjoyed some of his Spaghetti Western. It's the one that we covered a while back, um, which I can't for the life of me remember the name. His name is Nobody, or A Man Called Nobody, or I don't know, but uh, yeah, and you know how I feel about spinach, so uh, yeah, good job, uh, love you guys, and uh, take care. Did he say that he, we know how he feels about spinach? Uh, he must have, because I don't know any actress's name that sounds like spinach. Yes, okay, then he called Strange. back real quick with a nine second one here. Man Called Invincible is what it was called. <laughs> there we go. And George Hilton played Tricky Dicky. Tricky Dicky. Definitely worth a watch. Later. <laughs> I think Hilton Hilton is to Bill what Silva is to us. He really loves the Hilton. Yes, he really does. And uh, I do like the Hilton quite a bit. I'm a big Spaghetti Western fan. He's in a lot of those. Uh, the only thing, I think the only reason why it's ever turned me off about Hilton is um, is that I've seen a lot of interviews with him, and he's really not, he's only proud of his work now. And I think I mentioned that in the review, that he's only proud of some of that work now. But at the time, he was a bit of an asshole about it and just thought it was all kind of junk. So. I yeah, know. I have always felt a little bit of a disconnect in some of his work. I like him enough, but I do find, too, he's a little bit above it, and it kind of comes out in his performances, but but I do like him. Yeah, he's a bit of a he's a bit of an old man stud. Him and Martino, man, they're, like I said, they're drinking out of the same fountain. These guys don't age. Oh, yeah. So if you guys haven't seen George Hilton recently, look for some pictures of him. He's, he's uh, aged well, to say the least. Still hits the gym, from what I understand, every day. So George Hilton loves George Hilton. <laughs> Hope we don't have to interview him, and I have to explain that if he listens to our back catalog. Yeah, no kidding. All right, uh, next voicemail. Hey, guys. Sean from Chicago calling. We're to get a horrible cold, but wanted to uh, let you know I'm at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago and Southport at a Turner Classic Movies Classic Film Festival event. About to see uh, Eve Marie Saint and Robert Osborne live and watch... Uh, North by Northwest, the classic Hitchcock, one of my top five all-time favorite films, on uh, the big screen here in their biggest cinema. And I uh, wish everybody in our podcast land could be here with me, but uh, if I can get a good picture with my phone, I'll send it to you. Wish you were here. Hope you're doing well. All right. Sean, being luckier than we were at that night at that time. <laughs> Certainly. Yes, I would have to have been there. Uh-huh. I would have I <clears throat> loved that. All right. Uh, don't really have much more to comment other than I'm jealous and envious, and thank you, Sean. Yes. Next, next voicemail. Hey, gentlemen. It's Cody again. I uh, just want to hit on a couple things. Um, Sammy, uh, I just wanted to say I don't know a whole lot about your taste in television, but what I do know I have to compliment you on. So that you're a fan of Twin Peaks on Facebook, uh, as am I. Yeah. The show all time, no <laughs> question. Um, on top of that, community and justified uh, community, I think it's cemented itself as one of the best shows on TV, maybe the funniest, and justified. 
I think third episode's airing tonight. I'm already sold on it. Uh, great show. Great shows. Um, I want to weigh in on the, the funny-looking, attractive women conundrum. Uh, Tilda Swinton, I don't think is... Uh, doesn't deserve the harsh response that she's gotten. I think that she's... I think generally she's a little too uh, man that fell to earth for me. Whoa. <laughs> but uh, she does have her moments. I think she photographs pretty well. There's a photograph of her uh, smoking that I see uh, periodically. Well, she's very attractive. She's very she's very striking. Um, but she looks a little too um, inhuman sounds mean, but I don't mean it in a mean way. Uh, <laughs> Maggie Gyllenhaal, I've always, I, yes. I, I, I never found her particularly attractive. I thought her... Uh, there's some like, kind of earnest appeal to her in Crazy Heart that I liked, but uh, I remember seeing Dark Nine at Midnight and uh, the party scene where Joker tells her she's beautiful. These, almost everyone in the theater just said no or booed or something at once. <laughs> um, so I think is missing from this conversation is Emma Stone from Zombieland and Superbad, who is attractive, but has something about her. I don't know what it is. Um, something's just off there. Of hmm. uh, well, oh, yeah, I finished, I uh, just got done with a uh, Seagal with an accent double feature, the first of which was Driven to Kill, where he plays a Russian novelist, which I liked, oh, wow. but it runs about 109 minutes. Oh, I got to pause it. I'm just laughing. A Russian novelist. <laughs> oh, <Jeez>. my God. <laughs> That's going to the top of the queue. Yeah, if I can hear him do a bad Russian accent, I'm in. Oh, I can't quit laughing at the mere thought of it. I just want to see the scene where he does a um, uh, a lecture in front of his students or something. Yeah, well, you know, you know, he's gonna say niet, 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 niet. Of course. <laughs> oh, bada bing, niet. It's just <laughs> perplexing. Um, second, out for justice uh, was as good as you guys said. I'm not even halfway through his catalog, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the end that's his very best. Um, really liked it a lot. William Forsythe. I need mean, something needs to be said about how fucking gross he is in this movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Seagal is just is just really good. Although I I really if uh, if I caught the guy who threw a puppy into traffic, just a kick in the nuts wouldn't be good enough. Yeah. No. Uh, all right. I hope I didn't go over too much. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Yo, fuck nuts. Yeah, hey, fuck nuts. <laughs> uh, okay, so a couple things in that voicemail. First, Driven to Kill is now number one on my Netflix queue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hope to get some good sound clips. Yet, yet. Um, also, I am a big. I'm actually a big fan of television. I watch a lot of television. I just don't talk about it on the show a lot uh, because it's a movie show. Uh, I don't know if I watch a whole lot of television, but I watch about four or five different programs uh, that I like quite a bit. And Justified is very awesome. This is the. I don't know if you know about the show. Well, this is the new Timmy Timothy Elephant show based on a. Uh, did I say elephant or did I say elephant? Elephant. Uh, based on an Elmore Leonard story, uh, plays a Kentucky U.S. Marshal, uh, so it kind of hits close to home for me. Got some nice Kentuckyism. They talk a lot about a lot of the areas that uh, I know about quite well. So, what, what channel is it on? Sam? It's on FX. It's kind of like a. Uh, it's kind. I would kind of categorize it in a quick uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, synopsis as like a a redneck shield. I never got a chance to see the Shield. I always wanted to because I heard good things about what's his name, Vic Mackey. And yeah, I think you would. I think you would have liked the Shield if you ever get around to it. I think you'll like it, and I think you would like this show too. It's very, it's very, uh, very body, very, very masculine. <laughs> There's so many shows I just I want to watch, but I have this this disease where I think about how many movies I'm not watching when yes. I'm watching TV shows. Totally understandable. Um, I'm trying to get through Dexter season four, where Lithgow is pretty repulsive. <laughs> Uh, in this method of killing, but um, 
<laughs> yeah. I, uh, well, you know, it. you know. Well, here's the thing. The good thing about the, you know, is there going to be is going to be a library of stuff for you to watch at some point in time. So. Yeah, and the good thing is my wife can like all the TV. I like Dexter, Lost. Uh, yeah, it's good. Etc. And that's some of the stuff I watch. I watch Lost, and I watch. I don't know if I've, I, you know, I've never actually tack, tackled Dexter before, but uh, oh, buddy, it's it's so good. I'll, so I'm good. sure I'll get to, I'll get around to. It. It's one of those ones I, I got to get around to. You know what I mean? If for no other reason than in season four to see Lithgow as bare ass three times in the first episode. Oh, I'm down for that. <laughs> Nothing I like more than some Lithgow ass. Yes, that's a sound. It's funny. Bill. I was saying to my wife how he he's a great villain. That he did a lot of that stuff with the Palma, and he kind of got away from it in the uh, late '80s and '90s, got into more comedy. But he's he can be menacing. He is, I think, an underrated and incredibly versatile actor. Yeah, for sure. He can for do sure. it all. He can do the heavy. He can do complete goofy, crazy, funny. Mm-hmm. He can do it all. I mean, uh, he really is one of the most talented character actors. I think that when he's gone, people are going to look back on him and be like, "Wow, you know, we should have appreciated Lithgow a lot more." And he should have had more chances to shine in a solo role because yes. he, like you said, he could really do it all. And he's, he, you're right. When he's gone, people are going to look back and think, fuck, why didn't yep. I let him have his, his wrestler or his crazy heart or his moment? Uh, yeah. I think he's quite uh, brilliant. I really do. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. All right. Uh, Cody called back. Hang on. Here we go. Hey, fellas. Uh, sorry to call again uh, so soon. It's Cody. Um, it's on this uh, newest episode of uh, OTC. They interviewed, or they interviewed, fuck, they uh, reviewed Kioma. Uh, my second favorite uh, non-Leone Spaghetti Western behind uh, The Great Silence. Uh, they didn't like it so much, uh, but uh, I, I adore it. I think it's wonderful outside of the obvious glaring flaws of music and uh, <laughs> some of the ending. Um, I was wondering to get your, your uh, thoughts on it, if you've seen it. Uh, Sammy, I think you have. Uh, I don't know about you, Will. Um, I'd love to hear your take on the show in the future, if you want to come down the line. And um, just one more thing. Uh, Il Vivo has really been uh, just stuck to him. I've been really been stuck on it. Um, I would encourage all the listeners to, to watch it, since it's, uh, especially since it's so readily available. It's really lingered on me. Um, at first, I was particularly taken with just the stylistic quality, the opening, the music. It was just, that's pretty breathtaking. It's kind of a dense film, but what's, what's really, what I'm clinging to now is the performance of the lead, um, I forget the character's name. Uh, he was the actor, like and and Andriotti or something like that. Um, Giulio Andriotti. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, in a, it's a, a wonderful performance. Um, it is the way he uh, like a rat. He's a he's a uh, tiny hunched old man, but at the same time, uh, enormously calculating. Um, it's just it, it, it's a wonderful performance. He does so much with so very very little. Um, yeah, I think everybody should watch it. Sorry to call in again, but uh, yeah, had to be said. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Yeah, and a lot of people, like I said, are getting a chance to watch that here in the States because uh, it's on Netflix Instant, so I think a lot of people are checking it out. I hope they do. Like I said, it was my number one film of last year. I'll stand behind that, uh, absolutely. Uh, Tony Cervello, the, the actor, um, he's actually going to star in um, uh, Sorrentino's English film or American film debut, which is coming out uh, sometime this year. Uh, so that should be interesting. Uh, Cody, text, uh, not text, uh, message me <laughs> on Facebook about some other uh, Sorrentino films. So I'll talk to you about them. And as for Kioma, I have seen it. I own it. I really like it. Yes. Um, again, you know, Castellari is a, a master genre filmmaker to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, 
you know, I think it's just one of those things sometimes, different tastes, uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. The OTC guys didn't really dig it. I do, and I know you do, Sammy. Yes, I do. I, I quite like, uh, it kind of plays with the myth of the Spaghetti Western quite a bit. And, uh, yeah. of course, it's written by the Silver Fox himself, uh, Mr. Eastman. He wrote that film, and uh, we've talked about that quite a bit. And uh, <laughs> Nero's uh, beard in that film is amazing, which Bill and I did mention. The beard is um, amazing, the bearded one. And uh, it, it is... Uh, it is an easy film to, that I could see people making fun of because it's definitely of its time. It's kind of late 70s spaghetti western look and uh, a lot of fog machines, a lot of slow motion. But, uh, yeah, I think it has a lot of really good qualities. And, of course, we're not going to go into them here. We might review it at some point in time. We'll talk about why we like it so much. But uh, just know that Bill and, uh, Bill and I, that Will and I do, uh, I guess I could call you Bill if I really wanted to. Yeah. Uh, Will and I really dig uh, Kioma. But, yeah, the music is bad, though. Yeah, listen, we could critique a lot of Italian genre films of the time for their shortcomings, but I think when you see enough of them and you understand the budget constraints and just mm. the overall constraints they're working with, you kind of look at them in the context of what they had to work with. That's yes. what I always feel about some of that stuff. Some of the music's okay, it's just the the singing bits. And Bill and them mentioned that in their review. There's some some uh, you know, some storytelling <clears throat> singing bits that don't really work that well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. All right, uh, I think this is our last voicemail. Here we go. Howdy, gents. It's Ben from Cinecoltania. Been really enjoying the shows lately. Well, I'm always enjoying the shows. Film selection has been fascinating and intriguing. I was never really a big Seagal fan, mainly because I just never really saw his films. I'm not sure why. Um, I've always liked Under Siege. It's a real classic, and uh, I look forward to hearing what uh, Big Willie thinks of that one. Um, I've got Out for Justice and watched it, and it was a lot of fun. Had a great double feature of that and Stone Cold one night a couple of weeks ago and they were just cheered me up. Wow. Fantastic. Nice. Um, now on the matter of these talking about Dead Girl, I really didn't like Dead Girl. I really didn't enjoy it at all. It I it was a while ago I watched it now, I don't even really remember. I just remember yeah, it was really disjointed, it was clunky, it didn't work for me. It was seemed to be biting off more than can chew and not being able to chew at all. Now, for our last episode of Sin Called Tania, we watched an Australian film called Acolyte, which was somewhat similar. It dealt with teenagers becoming involved in some somewhat, you know, dark, nasty matters and things getting out of control. And it, they, I wonder about these films because they both seem to be trying to... Like, it's almost like the... the the evil kids thing, the evil kids film is transforming and becoming sort of social realist kind of thing where then trying to understand why these kids are doing messed up shit. But both Acolytes and Dead Girl don't really try to give any real reasoning behind it and I don't know if that's a flaw or not. I felt that it was in those two films. But then I think that, like, all the boys love Mandy Lane, which I really enjoyed that film. And again, it didn't give any reasoning for why they were, but somehow they constructed the film in such a way that it actually worked. The lack of reasoning was a strength. In Acolytes and Dead Girl, it felt like a weakness. It felt like adults writing about things they didn't know. And I just really have a problem. That was, like, at the core of it, I didn't like... It's not that I didn't even that I didn't like the kids. I didn't believe in the kids. I didn't believe that they were real people, and that just from there it was just all downhill. So I, I wonder, what do you think about? Have you seen many other films like this? Are these like, you know, teenagers gone gone wrong, gone psycho killers? Because it seems to be how the 
evil kids subgenre is sort of mutating and developing because that's definitely on a comeback with things like Orphan. Anyway, my three minutes are almost up. Love the show, guys. Cinecoltania.blogspot.com. Nice. Check us out. Thanks. All right. Got a plug in there. I like that. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I, I was pretty indifferent to Dead Girl. I liked it a little bit more than probably you two guys did, but uh, I still didn't like it a lot. Uh, you know, he brings up an interesting point. And I talked about this a little bit in the beginning with the documentary I watched uh, in between films, the uh, Don't You Forget About Me, the John Hughes documentary, and that, you know, I think the reason why Hughes has lasted, even though I'm not the world's biggest John Hughes fan, but I think the reason why he's lasted is because he wrote teenagers like they typically really are. or and they spoke to them. Yeah, and, and he respected them as mm-hmm. people, which... Unfortunately, in our society, and a lot of well, I don't know about Canadian society, but I know it's pretty similar to American society in a lot of ways. You know, we kind of look down on kids sometimes. You know, all oh, those you know stupid teenagers or those crazy teenagers or you know those young crazy you know, blah 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 the whole Marlon Brando wild one thing, or you know all that stuff. But I think that the reason why his stuff endures is because he knew how to write them. And I think really now nobody really writes teenagers well at all. And horror filmmakers are really maybe the worst. They've always kind of been the worst, really, when you think about it. I'm trying to think. I know there's got to be a few people out there that are writing teenagers well. I just, I'm a little bit under the weather still, but I'm confident there are at least a handful of people that write them well still, Sammy. There has to be, but I, nothing's coming to my mind right now. I'm just thinking about, you know, you think about teenagers, and that, that's a huge part of all cinema is teenagers, and especially, you know, like horror films, you know, slasher films, a lot of teenagers, a lot of really badly written teenagers in slasher films. There's some strong ones in there, but the characterizations are really kind of broad and stuff, and, you know, I guess you got to have that sometimes, so... But anyway, yeah. that's a very deep subject, Ben. Actually, we could probably do a whole show on that. And yeah, we could. But if anybody course, else, ben, yeah. But if anybody else has got any, you know, tidbits they'd like to send, then go ahead. Yeah, uh, and Ben, of course, and along with Alex, yes, uh, can be found at Cinecultania. Yes, they can. And uh, Ben actually hit me up the other night. He wants me, you, and at least him, I think, to do stunt rock together. So okay, yeah, I'm, I'm always down to have an Oz perspective on the. The god of genre filmmaking in Australia. Yes, so uh, that might be happening sometime soon. Keep your Why don't we up. do that with like Dead End Driving or something? Make it an all Trenchard Smith show. Yeah, yeah, we can do something like that. Or uh, with yeah. uh, with our with our review of Wake and Fright or something, maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe cool. we'll see. We'll, we'll, I'm sure there's a lot of. Actually, we could do the Silva film Thirst. Yeah, that's an Australian yeah. exploitation film. Yeah, either way. Uh, okay, go ahead and do your uh, pleasantries and, and whatnot. And I gotta while you're talking there, I'm gonna step away and get my list and see what the fuck I'm covering next week. <laughs> and you also have to. Oh, I just totally blanked. Fuck me. Um, <laughs> oh, you have to. Burr, 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 burr. I have to read this because I'm gonna keep forgetting and sounding like a broken record. <laughs> okay, so don't for, to forget to check out our three sister shows: OTC, CD, and Show Show. Uh, family Movie Nights, all the other good Pop Syndicate shows. Speaking of Pop Syndicate, I think I caught wind that our good friends Mike and Paul of Chinstroker versus Punter Excellence are a member of the family now. Um, so congratulations to them. It's nice to have them aboard. They put out a quality, quality show. Uh, Cinerama, of course, Sir Ian Loring's fine show on uh, cinema from the mainstream to uh, the underbelly of genre cinema. Uh, Paleo Cinema, speaking of that. Uh, fantastic show support Terry Cullen uh, I think I believe it's his 50th episode uh, coming up uh, yeah. people can call him in uh, send him a uh, voice message or, or an email uh, Action Attraction for the metal one uh, Better in the Dark Laboratories uh, Straight to Brooklyn uh, Cinecultania which we mentioned with Ben and Alex V Cinema which is a very celluloid.net podcast uh, Destroy the Brain with Treefy 
Midwest's one-man show. <laughs> uh, and then if paracinema.net or commentary.com. These are all .blogspot.com. Uh, Pickle Loaf, Deadly Doll's House, Lightning Bugs, Lair, Chuck Norris Ate My Baby, Death Rattle 13, Naked Eskimo, Heavens with a Z, Trash, Dear Bastards or Big Suck Loser. This is Quiet Cool, Rupert Pupkin Speaks, Uncool Cat, uh, Rach, Media Opinions, .blogspot.com. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Nightmaretheater.blip.tv is Mike's fantastic show uh, that he hosts uh, around genre film. Um, there's three different characters on there that host it. It's kind of a cool throwback thing. Nice drive-in feel to it. Uh, Cinema Day Bazaar, we're going to have a new thing on their site where... Um, anything we've covered, there's going to have uh, the Gentleman's Guide logo beside it so you can kind of find out everything we've we've covered on this show. It's going to be a nice thing back and forth uh, with us and them. Uh, Podcast Alley, please vote for us. It's a new month. We, we finished really, really strong last month, so I want to thank you guys. You guys came out of the out of the to the finish line really hard so i appreciate that we appreciate that yeah yeah i was oddly i was talking to brother d at Horrorhound, and he was like yeah we're in the third place or third place we got our comfort our second place we got a comfortable spot or something like that and then here we are all of a sudden we just popped up right above him <laughs> sorry brother about d, that i love you but it's not how you start it's how you finish baby <laughs> uh itunes reviews you can obviously donate to us if you feel so inclined to do so voicemail to 206-666-5207 Email to, I almost gave up my personal email. Wow. Midnightcinema at gmail.com. That's M I D N I T E. Follow us on Twitter, mainly Sammy, because I'm not on there very much. And that's yep. twitter.com backslash GGTMC. Um, and again, if you have any, anything you can support Mike Malloy with, uh, whether it's financially or creatively, uh, for the Eurocrime documentary, it's subgenre at gmail.com. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. So next week, I think I'm going to get back into the Western world. We haven't done a Western in a while. Have we? I don't think we have, have we? I don't think we have. No. Well, well, there's no better place to start, I think, or go back to it than to do somebody's film that we, you know, we actually covered one of this director's films and then we lost the recording. So, <laughs> so I think we'll do a little uh, massacre time, a little Fulci spaghetti western. Nice. It'll be the first Fulci we've done. Yeah, it'll actually be the first film with uh, Miliana that we've done too. No, is it? I think it is. I don't think we've done anything else with him in it. Oh, wow. I don't think we have. This is a t- a testy's in it. We've done testy before, but and uh, love me some testy. I think this might be our first Claudia Cardinal too. I think oh, she's man, in it. Yeah. I think she's in it. So love love me some Cardinal even more than some testy. <laughs> you love testies? What? What? Hey? What? <laughs> Not plural, singular with an I. No es. <laughs> yes. Um, you know what? You are going that way, and I'm going east. Uh, why don't we do fun? Like, we're going to do a mind melter as only the Japanese can do. It is Funky Forest First Contact. Nice. This is going to be a fucked up weekend of movie watching. <laughs> Fulci and fucking bizarre, funky-ass forest. I've watched about 20 minutes of Funky Forest, and I'm like, what the fuck? But, you know, I can't yeah, wait it's... to watch the rest of it. Oh, wait. Uh, is it Or is it a CDB pick next week? Uh, that's up to you. You've been picking a lot of CDB stuff. I mean, What, what, did, what did we do? Hang on. Oh, we, oh, yeah, it is a CDB pick. I'm very sorry. You know what, then? I'm going to have to scratch that. Uh, okay, we okay. do every other week. We do a, a CDB pick. So... Um, I'm going to pick a French post-apocalyptic film that I know Sammy's been anxious to see. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to watch this one. With, the, with uh, Silence himself from The Great Silence. It's yes. Malevil. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. yeah, I've been wanting to watch this one forever. Should be a good week. Oh, it's going to be a great week. I'm looking at, I'm looking at your roadmap one. I have printed out here. Make sure I got everything marked off that we've actually got around to. 
Yeah, I, I got to cross some of this stuff. And we'll get to Funky Forest and probably the week after, but we'll see. Yes. So that is everything. Uh, actually, you know, that piece of music you sent me, I think, makes for a really good outro nowadays. So I'm going to use it for a while because it really is fucking awesome. So it is awesome. Um, so we're going to. Do you want to explain to everybody where that's from? Because we know we're going to get asked that question. So. Uh, yes, it's from the uh, Freehand for a Tough Cop, which is a Polizia film with uh, Claudio Casanelli and the introduction of the garbage can character that Thomas Milian played uh, <laughs> in so many films. It's sort of a spinoff of the, or the, the forebear to Nico Giraldi, basically. Nice, nice. So it's, yeah, Freehand for a Tough Cop. It's and it's, stuff. of course, by the geniuses known as the D'Angelis brothers. And it is, it is one of my favorite pieces from them altogether, so... I'm going to play that out, uh, Will. I'm going to go get me a drink, and uh, we'll come back and do some more shows. Sound good? Sounds marvelous. <laughs> All right. So until next week, guys, adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 